Good day, good evening, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Is there any salvation outside the Catholic Church? This is a hard saying, as it says in the scriptures. You know the reference when Christ is teaching them about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and they say, this is a hard saying, who can accept this? The, the, the teaching, which is de fide, which is as serious as a heart attack, which is as old as the church, that there is no salvation outside the Catholic Church, this is not something that Catholics can deny. And it is my opinion that it's one reason why the Catholic Church is suffering so much in modern secular societies because her leaders, her members, and so forth are squeamish to tell this truth just the way it is. And we know that Christ tells us the truth will set you free. So I don't know why we're not telling people it, but it is. And we're going to talk about this in this episode. This is almost three hours long. I'm recording an introduction for this right now, which is video, but the actual podcast is in audio. And the reason is because it's almost three hours. I don't know how big a three-hour HD video file would be. I'm a hobby editor. I don't have a, a big, strong computer that edits things and whatever, all those huge files. That's not what I do. I kind of just put together these talking head things here and there, or I live stream. Um, so I did it audio. Also, I used the work, and I want to say thank you to a man named James Hanish. I used to work with him at the Fatima Center. We never met James, if you're watching this. I mean, we virtually connected, but we worked in, he's in the States, I'm in Canada. We were kind of virtually working together, writing articles for the magazine and so forth. Um, but when I was helping move the Canadian office of the Fatima Center, would have been sometime 2020, 2021, we were clearing out a lot of books. And one of the ones that was available was this long essay book he wrote. You can see it here. It's called uh, A Study of the Catholic Church's Teaching on Salvation. I don't think this book is available for sale anywhere. So James, um, if you do want to get this out to more people, just let me know. Maybe send me a note if you, if you see this, uh, because it's amazing. And essentially what James did in here is, this isn't a book of James's opinions. This is a book of, well, I'll just show you a page, okay? So, you know, this is a book of, look, it's just all citations from all of the relevant places about whatever, everything. I mean, this is a, this is a, the, this, this should be presented for like a PhD dissertation or thesis for a master's. It's an excellent work. So I use this work primarily. So thank you so much to James for putting this together. And I'm so grateful that I have a copy of it. It's a wonderful thing. Please don't email me asking me for it, ladies and gentlemen, because I don't have an extra copy and I don't have an electronic copy, so I can't share it. Okay. Um, so I went through a lot of this work. It's about 150 pages long, roughly. Um, and I went through a lot of it. So this is why this is almost three hours long. I, took I went to painstaking detail to make sure no stone was left unturned because the last thing I want is to present this doctrine without doing it fully and at the same time, I don't want to present the doctrine without giving context to some of the harder teaching, so to speak, because it is possible to fall into traps in a bunch of different directions, if that makes sense. So as God is my witness, I was faithful to the teaching of the magisterium over all the ages. We considered the teachings of the Second Vatican Council. We considered the teachings of literally every pope and every saint and every doctor and every theologian and every church father who talked authoritatively on this issue for 2000 years. It is the teaching of the Catholic Church that there is no salvation outside the church. And for one to be in the church, one must be baptized. And we do talk about baptism of desire and baptism of martyrdom, of blood. We talk about miraculous conversions. What about these people who never had someone visit them? Well, there are plenty of stories of things that you got to listen to the show. You're going to be astonished and say, wow, I, I can't believe that actually happened. Um, and I think what ultimately you'll find 
is that it's a beautiful teaching, which might seem strange for some, but rejecting this teaching, it's a terrible thing to reject this teaching. For one, you become a heretic. But secondly, Christ shed his blood for us to have one church, one baptism, one faith. If we deny this teaching in any way, this is, this is, an, this is a crime against God. Um, okay, before we get into it, two things, three things. First, I want to show you just some citations. Oh, that's our sponsor. We'll get to that in just a second here. But here's some citations. Many of these are in the book, but I found a website I can just share some of them. So here's Pope Pelagius from 8578-590. Okay, this is when he was around. And he said, consider the fact that whoever has not been in the peace and unity of the church cannot have the Lord. Although given over to the flames and fires, they burn or thrown to wild beasts, they lay down their lives. There will not be for them that crown of faith, but the punishment of faithlessness. Such a one can be slain, he cannot be crowned. If slain outside the church, he cannot attain the rewards of the church. And this would refer to, for example, heretics being killed by persecution. Pope St. Gregory the Great. Now the Holy Church Universal proclaims that God cannot be truly worshipped saving within herself, asserting that all they who are without her shall never be saved. Um, let's go to Pope Leo Thirteenth, right here. This is our last lesson to you. Receive it, engrave it in your minds, all of you. By God's commandment, salvation is to be found nowhere but in the church. Pope St. Pius X, it is our duty to recall to everyone, great and small, as the Holy Pontiff Gregory did in ages past, the absolute necessity, which is ours to have recourse to this church to effect our eternal salvation. And there are many, many more we could go through, but I think this one is probably the strongest. This is from the Council of Florence and Pope Eugene IV. You see this here. The Most Holy Roman Church firmly believes, professes, and proclaims that those not living within the Catholic Church, not only pagans, but also Jews and heretics and schismatics, cannot become participants in eternal life, but will depart into everlasting fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels, unless before the end of life the same have been added to the flock, and that the unity of the ecclesiastical body is so strong that only to those remaining in it are the sacraments of the Church of Benefit for Salvation and do fastings, almsgiving, and other functions of piety and exercises of Christian service produce eternal, eternal reward, and that no one, whatever almsgiving he is, has practiced, even if he has shed blood for the name of Christ, can be saved unless he has remained in the bosom and unity of the church. Pretty strong. Um, this goes against a lot of modern wisdom on it. It's been going around on, on Catholic Twitter and, and, and social media. A lot of Protestants are asking about, do I have to be Catholic? Can Protestants be saved? And I've seen a lot of even traditional Catholics say, well, normally speaking, Protestants can't be saved, but there are like, it's really difficult and there are exceptions. No, there are no exceptions. Anyone who is saved is Catholic before they die. We'll talk into how that can happen miraculously based on the history of the church and so forth in this episode, but they're not dying as a heretic or unbeliever. That's impossible. They're incorporated into the church in a real way before they die. If they're saved. Also, this should be a warning to all of us as Catholics that we're not saved just because we're Catholic, because we still have to die in a state of grace. So dying in a state of mortal sin doesn't matter how in the church you are, you are an enemy of God. You do not have the friendship of God in your soul. Uh, you, do not have the, you do not have the Holy Trinity dwelling within your soul if you are in a state of mortal sin. And I think that's probably about, oh, last one, one thing before I get to my last couple things. 
Um, many people will retort to this whole thing and say, well, what about I hear things from John Paul II saying everyone's saved through the church, etc." as much as it's unfortunate that ambiguous language like that is used, and I do address this throughout the episode, but I just wanted to get it out, out of the way. As unfortunate as it is, as ambiguous language can be used, um, here's the thing, my friends. If you're in a tunnel, you're also going through the tunnel. So to say you're going through the church, you have to be in the church. It's an unfortunate phrasing because it's used improperly. But nonetheless, if I'm being honest, to say you have to be saved through the church, well, you can't go, if you go through the church, you have to go in it. Okay, so it doesn't really change it. Um, and he couldn't change a teaching unless you think John Paul II changed teaching uh, officially. And then you're pretty much making the argument of a state of a contest. And I don't know what you're going to do about indefectibility of the church. So a lot of problems with that. Okay. So since we're talking about the salvation of souls, one of the best ways to make sure that we all save our souls and pray for those who are not in the church and can't save their souls, uh, we should be praying the rosary, which is why I would like to say thank you to our sponsors over at Queen of Victory Rosaries. Beautiful rosaries. I have one that I use every day with, well, basically every day with my family. Um, we were sent an amazing 15-decade rosary. Uh, I shared a picture of it in a, in, an art, in, a, in a video from a prior day um, where the woman who makes them actually put the birth dates of my children so far born, born so far to the different decades. We got five decades with birthdays on them. Uh, we can send it back and, and she's going to add the next children. So we have another child coming in about three weeks, um, God willing, that sort of thing. And, and, and she can put those there as well. There's tons of gifts here. Christmas is coming up. You do get a discount if you use the coupon code Kennedy at checkout. Um, and also, she can make anything custom. Uh, you know, so if you want to have something, that 15-decade that rosary was made for us, and it was custom. Uh, if you want to have something made for you, for a loved one, for an anniversary, for whatever, go for it. There's a month until Christmas. So I suggest you get on it now. Um, it's handmade stuff. So it's going to take a little bit of time. And then you're going to have to ship it. So get on it now. Use the coupon code Kennedy at checkout. And if you don't like Etsy, I get it. Some people don't like Amazon. Some people don't like Etsy. I understand that. Just go to this link, which is in the description of this video. You just open up the web page. And then you see here, my mouse is hovering over. You can just contact her. And you can say, I don't want to do my money through Etsy. I'm not into technology. I want to send you a check. She'll work it out for you. Okay. I think that covers everything. But um, thank you to Queen of Victory Rosaries for that. Last thing. I promise. I promise. Uh, if you want to listen to an audio-only version of this, you can find it at my Substack. Um, and if you want to get the version of it, you have to be a paid subscriber, um, which is, I don't know, $8 a month or something like that. It's very low. You can pay $80 for the year. It took me a lot of work to put this together. Um, this is free on YouTube. This is free on YouTube. But if you want to have an audio-only version through the Substack, you'll, uh, you can go sign up for that. If you're someone who signed up as a free subscriber at Substack, you can upgrade. Okay. And you'll get an email about this anyway. Um, otherwise just enjoy it on YouTube and have a great time. And, and it's there for you. But I know if you don't want to have ads and you want to just listen to it straight, the file is there on a Substack article. So, and also thank you to my YouTube members, um, for all your support as well. Um, and I think that's about it. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Enjoy the show. This is about three hours long. Listen the whole time. Break it up. Listen to it over the weekend. Rewind. Fast forward. Do what you have to do. And uh, God bless you all. 
Good day, ladies and gentlemen. This is going to be a long podcast. This is going to be a deep dive. I've, I've actually been recording this over a long period of time, uh, putting together a lot of research. We're going to talk about the fact that there's no salvation outside the Catholic Church. Extra ecclesiam nulla salus. Outside the church, there is no salvation. Now, it is clear. It is a church teaching. It is de fide. It is binding. And it is unavoidable. There are mysterious, uh, let's not call them exceptions, because they're not exceptions. No one is saved outside of the Catholic Church, but there are, let's call them exceptionalities, like baptism of desire and blood, which are real things that we'll go through as we source various documents, as well as documented, and we're going to go through some of those stories. There are some stories of miraculous conversions, you know, saints bilocating to see natives here or there. There's actually a pretty strong pious tradition about uh, St. Thomas the Apostle, having actually spent some time in the Americas. Um, anyway, we'll get to that as we go. But this is a church teaching, and I want to give it the best overview possible. Um, also, this is not about me. This is a video. Sorry, this is this is not something that's good for video. This is something that you should listen to to learn it. And I don't want the focus to be on myself as well. I just want to be the vehicle, the instrument of the information, God gave me a half-decent speaking voice and a microphone, so here you go. Before we continue, I'd like to say thank you to all those who have helped to support this show. Um, it's growing every day, and I'm very grateful. If you'd like to help support this podcast, either whether you're listening to it video or audio, wherever you're listening to it, click the link in the description box for either the Substack, um, which is how you can subscribe as a paid member there for premium content. Or if you're on YouTube, you can be a jo uh, you can join as a YouTube member. Or if you watch it on YouTube, you can still join through Substack. But I pick Substack because it's a non-censoring program. It doesn't go woke, so I like it there. Plus, I like to write as well. So if you sign up as a Substack subscriber for premium content, you'll get some premium articles there as well. Okay, let's get into the, let's let's get into the topic. So there's no salvation outside the church. Now. There are three positions that are pretty common today that are off base. Um, there are three types of understandings that are basically, well, basically in error uh, as their understanding of no salvation outside the church. These are basically summarized as the following. The first position, uh, these people just basically reject that the Catholic Church is the true church established by Christ, or at least the exclusive church. And they don't even believe there is an infallibly divine, a divinely inspired teaching magisterial reality to the church. And they sort of support ecumenism. So we're talking about Catholics here. And I should add, by the way, this podcast is not for non-Catholics necessarily. I mean, if you're non-Catholic, thanks for listening. But this is to convince Catholics of their own dogma. So I'm not going to get into the apologetic for the primacy of Peter, the establishment of the Catholic Church as the only church, etc. I'm not getting into that here. This is about what the church teaches that Catholics have to believe. So if you're listening to this and you're considering this as a believing Catholic, you've already, I'm assuming, accepted the fact that it's necessary to be Catholic. Well, if it's necessary to be Catholic, then there should be a reason for that. There should be something attached to that. There should be a consequence for not. And it should be beyond just well, life isn't as good for me. It's got to be something a little bit more serious. In any case, there is a group of Catholics who basically just buy into ecumenism and they take some of the ambiguities of, for example, Lumen Gentium from the Second Vatican Council to the extreme and, you know, Lutherans, Catholics, Calvinists, whatever, they're all Jesus lovers and that's good enough for me. 
Another group is a group that's a little bit more, it's closer to the truth. They believe the church to be the only true church, but suppose that God deigns to use even false religions as channels of grace and means of salvation. This is pretty common amongst, let's say, conservative Catholics. And the last group, um, these are those who believe that every man's salvation depends on his serving God as a Roman Catholic, but nevertheless suppose that the invincibly ignorant adherence of false religions might, after all, be unconsciously united to the church. Um, this is a, the, the, the most tricky one because there is a reality that someone can be in some way not visible to us, a member of the Catholic Church. Uh, it's not in any parish registrar. It's not written down anywhere. Um, but they did convert and were, and their, uh, the gift of faith was given to them. They were justified, so to speak, for lack of a better term, um, through baptism uh, in a different way. And we're going to get into that as we go. But the error here is that because you basically have this idea that you want to be with God, um, that's sort of enough for an implicit faith that constitutes for baptism, which just isn't the case. Now, the topic of invincible ignorance is going to come up a lot in this episode. Um, and they're going to, people are going to point to a quote from Pope Pius IX, where Pope Pius IX um, basically uh, just says that someone can't be culpable for their ignorance. And he did say that in an elocution to someone in like a telegram or a letter or something like that. Um, but Pius IX was actually horrified when he was horrified when this was used as a way to justify an untraditional teaching. And I have it written down here. It says Pius IX once expressed his pain, pained outrage over widespread insinuations that he was supportive of such theological innovations in spite of his repeated denunciations of the same. So here's what he said in our times. And sorry, this is an elocution to the Cardinal's. Uh, December 17th, 1847. In our times, many of the enemies of the Catholic faith direct their efforts towards placing every monstrous opinion on the level with the doctrine of Christ, or confounding it therewith. And so they try more and more to propagate that impious system of indifference of religions. But quite of late, we shudder to say it, certain men have not hesitated to slander us, referring to himself in the royal we, by saying that we share in their folly and favor that most wicked system and think so benevolently of every class of mankind as to suppose that not only the sons of the church, but that the rest, uh, that the rest also, however alienated from the Catholic unity they may remain, are alike in the way of salvation and may arrive at life everlasting. We are at a loss from horror to find words to express our detest detestation of this new atrocious injustice that is done to us. So Pope Pius X was not a fan of this idea. Um, in an encyclical that he wrote to the bishops of Italy in 1863, Quanto confichamur mo, uh, mo, mo errore, that's what it's called, he said, we mention again and censure a very grave error of some Catholics who believe that men living in error and separated from the true faith and from Catholic unity can attain eternal life. But the Catholic dogma that no one can be saved outside the Catholic Church is well known. Indeed, this is certainly quite contrary to Catholic teaching. Now, Pope Pius X, or Pope Pius IX, he didn't stop there. But he went on to remind them of the workings of grace that make salvation possible to all men, though without immediately specifying any aspect of that process. 
He said, They who labor in inventable ignorance of our most holy religion and who zealously keeping the natural law and its precepts engraved in the hearts of all by God and being ready to obey God, live an honest life and upright life, can by the operating power of divine light and grace attain eternal life. Now, this has been taken out of context from Pope Pius XII, if we know what he said previously, that he calls this idea of religious indifference or you can be saved outside of the church, etc., as a horror. Because what is explicitly set forth here is the simple truth that one who lives for some time in ignorance of the Christian revelation has, like every adult, in whatever land or culture he may live, a real possibility of salvation. That's all he's saying. Um, now, it may not be said right in this thing here, but what we know from fuller expositions of the Catholic faith is that such persons can in fact be saved only if before death this ignorance is vanquished. It is for this end that those graces are operating. So that you are outside the church and divine grace is operating within you when you're in ignorance, it's not so you stay in your ignorance, it's so you come out of it. So yes, Pius IX said nothing that was against the strict interpretation of outside the church no salvation, and sadly, this has been used by many to sort of teach against this traditional understanding. In fact, when you look at Lumen Gentium, and I have the quote right here, um, it says, Those who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and moved by grace, trying their actions to do his will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience, these two may achieve eternal salvation. That's not technically false. They may achieve eternal salvation but not outside the Catholic Church. So it's not their fault they don't know God. It's not their fault. Well, everyone can know God through reason. That's established uh, in the Bible and in the First Vatican Council. But it's not their fault that they haven't had the gospel revealed to them. And they may achieve eternal salvation. But a decree like this must be read in the light of the Church's solemn definitions, even if that requires us to understand those decrees in a somewhat counterintuitive manner. So the reason I'm starting this here is because I know that Catholics have been told that Vatican II makes it more open for salvation, etc. People say, well, look, if we understand invincible ignorance, people can be saved if they're ignorant, etc., etc., etc. All those things have to be understood properly, and I wanted to get that out of the way first before we dive into the meat of the conversation, the strict, in, uh, infallible declarations of the Church. So let's get into that now. All right, let's get to the meat of it now. So... God desires the salvation of every human being. That's something we need to make clear. So if someone's going to say, well, this church teaching is too harsh. Listen, God desires the salvation of every church, of every person, every human being. And here is scripture to back this up. So here's from Ezekiel. A desire not the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. This is from Matthew. It is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is in 1 Timothy. I desire, therefore, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all men, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved. For Christ Jesus gave himself a redemption for all. And here's something from 1 John. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So Scripture is very clear, both in the Old and New Testament, God desires the salvation of all mankind. Now, here's some theological background. This is what the Catholic Encyclopedia says about this in 1909, the, the 1909 version. It is the divine will to save all mankind, 
By the will to save, theologians understand the earnest and sincere will of God to free all men from sin and lead them to supernatural happiness. God, without regard to original sin, wills the eternal salvation of all the prosperity of posterity of Adam. Excuse me. The Book of Wisdom eulogizes in stirring language the all-exceeding mercy of God and bases its universality on the omnipotence of God, on His universal domination, and on His love for souls. Wherever, therefore, divine omnipotence and domination extend, wherever immortal souls are to be found, thither also the will to grant salvation extends so that it cannot be exclusive of any human being. Okay, so God wills the salvation of all men, but the gift of salvation is accorded only to those who before their death have been translated into the state of justice from that of original sin. So here's what sacred scripture says about that. This is from Romans. Death reigned from Adam even over them also who have not sinned after the similitude of the transgression of Adam, that is, even over those innocent of any personal actual sin. By one man sin, sin entered into this world, and by sin death, and so death passed upon all men. For, by the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners, and death reigned unto all men to condemnation. This is from Second Corinthians. Christ died for all, but if one died for all, then all were dead. And this is from Ephesians, we all are by nature children of wrath. Now, here is what popes and councils have said about this. The punishment of original sin is deprivation of the vision of God. This is Pope Innocent III. Uh, this is the Second Council of Leon. Lyon. The souls of those who die in mortal sin with or with or with original sin only immediately descend to hell, yet to be punished with different punishments. So there's a limbo, for example, the fathers went to before Christ opened the gates of heaven. They were, they were righteous, but they hadn't, uh, their, their souls had not been trans, trans, uh, translated into the state of justice through baptism. Council of Florence. We define, so def definitive teaching, that the souls of those who depart in actual mortal sin or in original sin only descend immediately into hell, but to undergo different punish punishments of different kinds. And Council of Trent says a similar thing as well. Theologians. St. Thomas Aquinas, according to the Catholic faith, we must firmly believe that Christ and the Blessed Virgin alone accepted. All men descend from Adam, descended from Adam, contract original sin from him, of which sin, the penalty, is the death of the body as well as the exclusion from glory. So, yes, God desires the sin of the salvation of all men, but there's a caveat. We don't just, we're not just saved because of God's will. It is the teaching of scripture and the teaching of the church and the theologians and the script and, 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 and the sacred tradition that we must be baptized. Uh, so we have to understand, therefore, God actively seeks to draw all men toward justification. And for this purpose, he extends actual graces universally. So don't think that, well, because you're not raised in a Catholic family, Therefore, God sort of leaves you in the lurch. That's absurd. Then no one would, would have the grace of conversion. So here's what Thomas Aquinas says about God actively drawing men toward justification. All men, by the way. God is always working man's justification, even as the sun is always lighting up the air. Now, here is scripture talking about God extending actual graces universally. So every man on earth is given the opportunity to draw towards the Catholic Church. This is Psalm 144. The Lord is sweet to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. 
Also from Psalm 144, Thou openest thy hand and fillest with blessing every living creature. This is from Wisdom. Thou hast mercy upon all, and overlookest the sins of men for the sake of repentance. Thou sparest all, because they are thine, O Lord, who lovest souls. This is also from Wisdom. Because thou art Lord of all, thou makest thyself gracious to all. Now here's from the New Testament. Um, this is a combination of John, Matthew, um, John 8, uh, verse 12, Matthew 5, verses 14 to 15, John 12, verse 46, and John verse 1, verse 9. I am the light of the world. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but upon a candlestick that it may shine to all that are in the house. I am come a light into the world, that whoever, whosoever believeth in me may not remain in darkness. That was the true light, which enlighteneth every man that cometh into this world. And here's from Ephesians. According to the measure of the giving of Christ, grace is given to everyone. And here is from Titus. The grace of God our Savior hath appeared to all men. So you can see the point here. So here are some theological, and, and, and uh, these are some statements from big name decrees and saints and so forth. So here's a decree of the Holy Office from 1690. It was condemned as an erroneous doctrine that pagans, Jews, heretics, and other, others of this kind do not receive in any way any influence from Jesus Christ. And so you will rightly infer from this that in them there is a bare and weak will without any sufficient grace. So it doesn't matter who you are, God is calling you to conversion. So we've established so far that um, uh, salvation is desired for all, but you also must be baptized, and that if you're not in that state, even if you're not raised in a Catholic family, God will still give every single person on earth sufficient graces in order to seek that out if they correspond to them. The Catholic Encyclopedia said the universality of grace is as a, re a result of the divine will to save all mankind. And here's uh, uh, Father Reginald Guerrigou Lagrange, one of the greatest Thomists in the last couple hundred years, he said, those of us who have been born into Catholic families have received incomparably more from the divine mercy than the bare essentials of God, that bare essentials God has given to the savage of Central Africa. Nevertheless, the savage will receive whatever graces are required for salvation. Whatever graces are required for salvation. So, yes, outside the church, there's no salvation. It's a very severe and important doctrine, but God is a merciful God and extends these graces to all. This is why we don't say we know who's damned, for example, but at the same time we say the normal means of being saved are through baptism, which we'll get into that as we go. Now, it could be that God might choose to give a person all the graces needed in order to discover, believe in, and love him in a sudden, all-at-one singular event. And we know this from sacred scripture, and we know this from the conversion of St. Paul. Now remember, at that time, St. Paul was a persecutor of the church. Now, we all know what happened. He got knocked off his horse. He converts, and there you go. Now, he was baptized, um, but nonetheless, he was basically given the gift of faith, so to speak, out of nowhere. Now, I should say, when I say give the gift of faith, I don't mean religious opinion. I mean the full Catholic faith that is transposed or translated into the soul through baptism. St. Thomas Aquinas talks about like something like that here. He says, and this is from the Summa, it sometimes happened that God moves a man suddenly and perfectly to good, and man receives grace suddenly. And thus it happened to Paul, since suddenly, when he was in the midst of sin, his heart was perfectly moved by God to hear, to learn, to come. So a, a, a conversion kind of out of nowhere. This can happen too. Now, but generally for, the, for mankind, for the generality of mankind, as I should say, in keeping with the limitations of human nature, God leads unbaptized persons toward justification by degrees. So 
Yes, there are exceptions, like with St. Paul. That's an exception. But generally, man is brought to God by degree. And it's by his fidelity to such uh, antecedent graces, actual graces. And this is how one earns, using a, a figure of speech, in this divine economy, you become more, you get more proximate graces toward an eventual justification. So if anyone's ever converted, they'll know it kind of happens all at once and over a long period of time. There are little promptings of the Holy Ghost that you say yes to or no to uh, until eventually you're there. So yes, St. Paul gets knocked off his horse and he's converted all at once, but don't count on it, so to speak, because that's not how human nature generally works. And sacred scripture talks about how men are gradually disposed to receive sanctifying grace by cooperating with antecedent actual graces. That means if you can imagine graces like little arrows, you know, God's shooting down these little arrows, boom, boom, boom. And over time, they, they get you, so to speak. I don't know if that's the right way, but that's what the analogy I'm using. So here's sacred scripture. Oh, how good. And this is from wisdom. Oh, how good and sweet is thy spirit, O Lord, in all things. Thou admonishest them that err by little and little, and speakest to them concerning the things wherein they offend, that leaving their wickedness they may believe in thee, O Lord. Um, this is from Pro uh, Proverbs. He that is good shall draw grace from the Lord. This is from the Gospel of John. And of his fullness we, have, we all have received, and grace for grace. And this is from Romans. The justice of God is revealed from faith unto faith. Now here's the Council of Trent. The Synod declares that in adults, the beginning of justification must be derived from the predisposing grace of God through Jesus Christ, so that they, through his simulating and, or stimulating and assisting grace, are disposed to convert themselves to their own justification by freely assenting to and cooperating with the same grace. Council of Trent also says, If anyone shall say that man's free will, moved and aroused by God, does not cooperate by assenting to God who rouses and calls, whereby it disposes and prepares itself to obtain the grace of justification, and that it cannot dissent if it wishes, let him be anathema. So man has free will. You can choose to say yes or no to the graces that come little by little. St. Thomas Aquinas says about this, um, to, believe, to believe does indeed depend on the will of the believer, but man's will needs to be prepared by God with grace in order that he may be raised to things which are above his nature. And Father Gary Lagrange says something very similar. To each moment there is attached not only a duty to be performed, but also a grace to be faithful in accomplishing that duty. A fresh, as fresh circumstances arise, with their attendant obligations, fresh actual graces are offered us in order that we may derive the greatest spiritual profit from them. Above the succession of external events that go to make up our life, there runs a parallel series of actual graces offered for our acceptance. This succession of actual graces, which we either agree to make use of for our spiritual benefit or, on the other hand, neglect to do so, constitutes the history of each individual soul as it is written down in the Book of Life in God to be laid open some day for our inspection. So, in addition to being brought into union with God, conversion that is, by degrees, souls are also brought to holiness and friendship with God by fidelity to these graces. So the reason I'm harping on this so much is because we are talking here about salvation. And uh, sometimes, you know, there's this tendency perhaps to think, okay, because it's no salvation outside the church, as long as you're in the church, you're good. But there's more to it than that. Here is a verse from, here's some verses from sacred scripture about being brought into friendship with God by fidelity to these graces. And this is from Job. 
If a man turn his heart to him, he shall draw his spirit unto himself. Here is from Proverbs. He that followeth justice and mercy shall find life, justice, and glory. Here is from the Book of Wisdom. Happy is he that hath not wrought iniquity, for the precious gift of faith shall be given to him, for the fruit of good labors is glorious. So note there, he that hath not wrought iniquity, for the precious gift of faith shall be given to him. So even if we're going to consider, you know, some miraculous and visible conversion of somebody who's not, um, you know, somebody who is, is not in the church and we're thinking, well, okay, everyone's got these graces that God wants everyone to be saved. Well, here's the scripture saying, yeah, that's true that it's, you know, that God wants everyone to be saved, but for happiness, true happiness, meaning, you know, life with God. It is for him that hath not wrought iniquity. So baseline, someone's going to have to basically avoid mortal sin, which is hard enough to do with the sacraments. Imagine how much harder it is to do without them. Now, there is an example in scripture of someone who was sort of outside the fold, but because of these fidelity, fidelity to these graces, because of this fidelity to these graces, he did experience a miraculous conversion. And this is the conversion of the good thief. And we might say there can be no more perfect or moving illustration of the workings of grace in our souls than that of the conversion of the good thief. Think about it. He's being crucified for legitimate reasons. So he has worked iniquity, but he recognizes our Savior. And because he has this radical recognition of our Savior, this puts him in a place where he finds himself in friendship with God. It's a miracle, but it's an illustration nonetheless. I'm going to read a passage here from Most Reverend Albin Goodyear, or Goodyear. He was from the Society of Jesus. He was a Jesuit, and this was written in a book called The Passion and Death of Our Lord Jesus Christ. It's written, uh, written as the following. The conversion of the penitent thief was a miracle of grace. Having at last opened his heart to grace, he felt faith springing up as if in quick response to his own testimony, and he believed that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God. With this faith, there was awakened in him hope and confidence in the power of the Redeemer to pardon him, and he prayed him to have mercy on him. Never did grace so suddenly transform a criminal into a martyr, but surely never was confession of faith more meritorious. And this thief's unexpected and plenary pardon, granted in return for a contrite sigh and a courageous confession, also shows us the power of grace and its entire spontaneity as far as God is concerned, as also the independence and terrible freedom of the human will. Even on the cross, he who was sent for the lost sheep of the house of Israel had not failed to go after and find a straying soul. Wonderful graces of conversion knocked at the heart of both the thieves, desiring admission. One of them listened and went from the cross to paradise. The other remained obdurately impenitent and went to hell, teaching us that he who corresponds with grace will be saved, while he, he who resists grace will be lost. So, this is an illustration of Christ looks for every lost soul even to the moment of their death, and they can unite themselves to Christ miraculously. Now, that's an obvious example because Christ is literally right there hanging beside the good thief, but it's an illustration. So we're talking about no salvation outside the church. We're not falling into any of these traps where we're going to downplay that dogma, but we are being faithful to Scripture and looking at the miracles that can happen in the lives of those who are even 
on the point of execution for crimes. Now, we must also add, though, that persistent rejection of and resistance to these graces will preclude the reception of further bountiful, efficacious graces, and perhaps even the intended gift of, just, gift of justification. What does this mean? That the tree falls the way that it leans. Okay, and here's from Scripture. If thou seek him, thou shalt find him. But if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. Now that's from, you might call it Chronicles or Paralipomenon, depending on how you say it. Um, and here's from the Psalms. They that go far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that are disloyal to thee. Here's from Psalms as well. Salvation is far from sinners, because they have not sought thy justifications. Now here's a money line from St. Augustine, which I think sums it up most succinctly. And he says, He who created thee without thee will not justify thee without thee. So this is why the stupid doctrine from the Lutherans of, you know, faith alone. No, there has to be an act of the will, not just some act of faith, but an actual, um, an actual uh, participation in the justification of your soul, one might say. Now, we also have to remember that sinners are also left in their own errors and ways when they become stiff-necked, when they, when they find themselves in a hardened state, as at this point, graces are actually withdrawn. Uh, this is something that a lot of people don't want to consider. It might sound controversial, but the scriptures back this up as well. And here is Psalms, uh, chapter 80, this is from, or Psalm 80, excuse me. My people heard not my voice, and Israel hearkened not to me. So I let them go according to the desires of their heart. They shall walk in their own inventions. So you make your bed, you lie in it. There is a point where you've essentially fixed your will. And this is something that the saints and, and, and theologians and doctors and so forth, of the church, so forth of the church all hold to because this is scriptural. Um, so we got to remember these things as well when we're considering miraculous conversion. St. Alphonsus Liguori, doctor of the church, adds a commentary that, that, that uh, edifies what we're saying here. And he says, The habit of sin hardens the heart, and God justly permits it in punishment of resistance to his calls. It is not that God hardens the habitual sinner, but he, meaning God, withdraws his grace in punishment of his ingratitude for past graces. And this is from Preparation for Death. Those are pretty strong words. Now here's from St. Jean de Brebeuf, who obviously knew about converting pagans, if you know his story. And he said, Oh my God, why are you not known? Why is this barbarous country not all converted to you? There are indications that these savages formerly had some more than natural knowledge of true God, of the true God as may be seen in some details of their fables. But being unwilling, being unwilling to revere God in their manners and actions, they have lost the thought of Him and have become worse than beasts in His sight. That is very fascinating. Why? Because one of the things that's a stumbling block for people for understanding this, understanding this doctrine of no salvation outside the church is they think, oh, these poor non-Christians around the world, there's no possible way. Well, St. John de Prébeuf was up close and personal understanding their religious beliefs, and he's saying, no, 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 they had an ancestral understanding. And this ties into the fact that we know that we all come from one set of parents, and we know that after the flood, we come from the sons of Noah, and we know that cultures pass down stories and religion and stuff. There are actually some cultures, for example, you can find in, um, there's a Chinese one, you can find the sermon somewhere online, and uh, it's a traditional Chinese tribe, and they 
at their wedding ceremonies basically say word for word what is found in the um, book of Genesis about uh, the flood of Noah. It's astounding how close it is. And it's something that's been held there for like 5,000 years or whatever. They've never let it go. And, well, that just shows you the ancestral link. So St. John de Brebeuf is saying, um, I'll say what he said here, that they have lost the thought of him and have become worse than beasts in his sight. So they knew better and over time became stiff-necked and hardened in their sin, even though they had the initial understanding. And here is one more line I'll add. This is from Gary Goulagrange again, great Thomist. And he says, um, but if he continues to resist, talking about a sinner, he deprives himself of the efficacious grace, which is offered insufficient grace as fruit is offered in the bosom. Blossom, excuse me, in the blossom. Hence, when later on he wishes for that efficacious grace, will he have that succor which, t- which touches the heart and converts him in truth? Difficulties grow greater, the will grows weaker, graces diminish. Now, lest we think that, okay, we're talking about ancestral memory in these native cultures, for example, in Canada and North America, but knowledge of God is not the same thing as faith, the gift of faith. So a knowledge of God obtained from the exercise of human reason upon the testimony of creation, even if accompanied by actual graces, so these particular things that each person receives, this does not constitute an act of supernatural faith, such as is necessary for justification. Rather, the translation into the state of justice requires an ascent of faith to revealed truths. Here's sacred scripture talking about the meritorious supernatural virtue of faith is more than a mere natural knowledge of God. And this is from Ephesians. Faith comes not of ourselves, for it is the gift of God, the gift of God. Here's from Romans. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Or how shall they believe him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace, of them that bring glad tidings of good things. Faith then cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. This is from Romans. And here is the First Vatican Council. If anyone should say that divine faith is not distinct from a natural knowledge of God and of moral truth, and therefore that divine faith does not require that a revealed truth be believed on account of the authority of God who reveals it, let him be anathema. So this is very important. So again, we'll, we'll say that again. If anyone should say that divine faith is not distinct from a natural knowledge of God, so people say invincible ignorance, well, they believe in God, isn't that faith? Isn't that the gift of faith? No, it's not, according to the Second or the First Vatican Council, an infallible council, by the way, or, or at least infallible statements within the council. Um, and uh, it says, I'll say it again, if anyone should say that divine faith is not distinct from a natural knowledge of God and of moral truth, and therefore that divine faith does not require that a revealed truth be believed on account of the authority of God who revealed it, let him be anathema. So it has to be the real Catholic faith. And we're going to get to some stories where there can be miraculous examples of this. But this just shows the severity of the situation. And this is what's always been believed. And this shouldn't shock people. If you read the Old Testament, I mean, there's no place for those Gentiles. <laughs> you know, the, the the Jews can be punished like they are uh, when Christ uh, whips, uh, takes out the whips and cords in the temple because that's actually taking place in the court of the Gentiles. It's, it's It symbolizes the fact that... Um, 
you know, basically, instead of actually focusing on the extension of the knowledge of God to the Gentiles, they're using it as a marketplace. It's very symbolic. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, it's very clear that in the Old Testament, it is the Gentiles and God's chosen people. And that group is very small. It's actually much bigger in the New Testament, if you consider the fact that the church is massive. So this motif of, it's a very exclusive thing. I mean, this is this is scriptural. Also, it, when we understand that man receives graces sort of gradually, this should make us understand as well how conversion of a society and the spreading of the gospel to the whole world also takes a long time. Because not only does man take a long time individually, but when men are put together collectively, how much longer would it take, generally speaking, for the civilizational conversion to take place? Here's uh, Thomas Aquinas on the same lines. He said, Natural knowledge cannot reach God as the object of heavenly bliss, which is the aspect under which hope and charity tends toward him. So anyone saying that somebody in invincible ignorance, well, they're good because they don't know anything. No, Thomas Aquinas is saying they cannot reach the, ob the, the object of heavenly bliss, the beatific vision. And Aquinas comments on that chapter, that passage from Romans that we read. And he said, now faith is through hearing, and some things must be proposed to be believed by man not as seen, but as heard, to which he assents by faith. Now, on top of that, the explicit assent of faith to revealed truths is necessary for justification and salvation. Here's scripture, Ephesians. For by grace you are saved through faith. Here's from uh, the Gospel of John. Amen, amen, I say unto you, that he who heareth my word and believeth him that sent me hath life everlasting and cometh not into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Here's another passage from the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Now you are clean by reason of the word which I have spoken to you. And here's from the Acts of the Apostles. And the Spirit said to Peter that he who should, or he should go with them, nothing doubting. And they entered into Cornelius' house. And he told them how he had seen an angel in his house standing and saying to him, Send to Joppa and call hither Simon, who is surnamed Peter, who shall speak to thee words whereby thou shalt be saved and all thy house. So there's a miraculous story. An angel, this man Cornelius must have been a good man. He's responding to the actual graces and God provides the means miraculously. But nonetheless, the, the gift of faith, which is necessary for justification and salvation is then because he assents to the revealed truths that the first pope is telling him. Here's Pope Leo Thirteenth. He says, Man is able by the right use of reason to know and obey certain principles of the natural law, but though he should know them and keep them inviolate through life, and even this is impossible without the grace of our Redeemer. So even if you know them, you can't actually keep them without grace. So again, if you don't have the sacraments, that's pretty difficult. Still, it is in vain for anyone without faith to promise himself eternal salvation. Quick little inter interruption here, ladies and gentlemen. If you've stuck with us uh, this long so far, it's about 40 minutes, so thank you. I guess it's about 50, including the introduction. So yeah, you're a trooper. Thanks for uh, uh, coming along for the ride. If you would like to listen to this without any ads or YouTube nonsense, you can become a paid subscriber on the Substack. The link for that is in the description to this video uh, or this uh, podcast, wherever you're listening to it. Um, also, my stuff is on Rumble, by the way. Um, now I've got that sorted out. It's synced up there. 
But again, there are ads, and you can avoid those for the MP3 files, at least, if you um, subscribe on uh, Substack as a paid subscriber. Also, if you don't mind the YouTube stuff, you're not a, you don't mind YouTube and you don't mind supporting it, which is some people, that's fine. You can become a YouTube member. Members of all types, whether it's Substack or YouTube, will have access to um, interview videos, especially before everyone else gets them. There will be, in the future, patron-only uh, or, or subscriber-only question-answer shows, things like that, um, and that's going to keep growing. And if you like reading, there will be articles available on the Substack that are just for you. Um, so anyway, lots of different ways. You can become a $3 a month subs- uh, paid subscriber on YouTube. Three bucks. I call it buy me a coffee. It's just, okay, I'll throw a couple shekels his way. Little things like that are helpful. And uh, that's all. Let's get back to the show. This is very different than Invincible Ignorance uh, Covers a Multitude of Sins. This is very different. This is the Council of Trent. The instrumental cause of justification is the sacrament of baptism, which is the sacrament of faith. Without such faith, no one is ever justified. Here's the First Vatican Council. Revelation is absolutely necessary because God has ordained man for a supernatural end to participate namely in the divine goods which altogether surpass the understanding of the human mind. Here's more from the First Vatican Council. Since without faith it is impossible to please God and to attain to the fellowship of His sons, hence no one is justified without it. Divine Catholic faith. No one is justified without it. Here's a decree of the Holy Office, and this was under Pope Innocent XI. And this is a condemned proposition. Faith in the broad sense, based on the testimony of creatures or on some or on some similar motive is sufficient for justification. So faith in the broad sense. So whenever someone talks about Protestants, well, they have faith in Jesus. They don't have the gift of faith. That Generally speaking, again, what happens to the individual? Is an angel going to come to him? I don't know. But Protestantism is not the faith. They have a religious opinion. Protestants, in a sense, aren't even Christians. That sounds anathema. I get that. They're baptized in a Trinitarian formula. In that sense, they've entered. But as far as a, a, a man with reason, they don't actually profess the Christian faith. Now, we have to understand that while there was a promise of the Redeemer before Christ came, there was maybe a vaguer notion, um, and that may have been a- adequate to the, uh, to the faith of those living in pre-Christian times, an explicit belief in the Christian mysteries is necessary for the salvation of all living in the present Christian era. And here's scripture, uh, the Gospel of John. He that doth, not, that doth not believe in him is already judged, because he believeth not in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is from John as well. He that believeth not in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Do Jews and Muslims believe in the Son? No. Believing in him, believing in him as a prophet, like some Muslims do, it does not count. Another uh, passage from John. I am the good shepherd and mine, and I know mine, and mine know me. So, you are Christ if you know him. If you don't know him as him, you're not part of the fold. Here's from Galatians. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything, 
but faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, here are Pope's counsels and decrees on this topic as well. This is from um, Pope Paul III, and this was on the evangelization of American Indians, 1537. No one may attain eternal life except through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a decree of the Holy Office uh, from 1679, condemned as an erroneous doctrine. A person is fit for absolution, uh, however much he labors under an ignorance of the mysteries of the faith, even if he does not know the mystery of the Most Blessed Trinity and of the Incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a church father. This is St. Augustine. Ye ver yea, verily, their sound hath gone forth into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the whole world. Before, however, all this had been accomplished, that is, regarding human creatures who had either not heard that all this was to take place, or had not yet learned that it was accomplished, what must human nature have done but believe in God who had made heaven and earth, by whom also it perceived by nature that it had been created and led a right life, and thus accomplish his will uninstructed with any faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. Well, if this could have been done, or can still be done, then for my part I have to say what St. Paul the Apostle said in regard to the law. Then Christ died in vain. Okay, let's, let's break that down here for a second. If all that was necessary to just follow the moral commandments that we have on our heart and believe vaguely in God, then there's literally no point for Christ dying. And it's, it's torturous. It's, it's, it's a, God's murderous for having his son murdered. Why would he do that? He continues, For if he said this about the law, which only the nation of the Jews received, how much more justly may it be said of the law of nature, which the whole human race has received? If righteousness come by nature, then Christ died in vain. If, however, Christ did not die in vain, then human nature cannot by any means be justified and redeemed from God's most righteous wrath, except by faith and the sacrament of the blood of Christ. And that was from uh, On Nature and Grace by Augustine. Okay. Let's take a look at something else here from St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas on whether it is necessary for salvation to believe in explicitly in the Trinity. And here's from the Summa Theologica, second part, second part, question two, answer eight. Um, in the Old Testament, the Trinity of persons is expressed in many ways. Thus, at the very outset of Genesis, it is written in manifestation of the Trinity. Let us make man in our image and likeness. Therefore, from the very beginning, it was necessary for salvation to believe in the Trinity. I answer that it is impossible to believe explicitly in the mystery of Christ without the faith, without faith in the Trinity, since the mystery of Christ includes that the Son of God took flesh, that he renewed the world through the grace of the Holy Ghost, and again that he was conceived by the Holy Ghost, wherefore just as before Christ the mystery of Christ was believed, implicitly and under a veil, so to speak, so too was it with the mystery of the Trinity. And consequently, when once grace had been revealed, all were bound to explicit faith in the mystery of the Trinity. Now, here's an important uh, citation, and this was from a response of the Sacred Office, the Holy Office, to the Bishop of Quebec, and this is from 1703. And why is this important? Because 1700s and early 1700s in Quebec, this is mission territory par excellence. And here's the question and then the response. Whether a minister is bound before baptism is conferred on an adult to explain to him all the mysteries of our faith, especially if he is at the point of death, 
because this might disturb, sorry for the page noise there, his mind, or whether it is sufficient if the one at the point of death will promise that when he recovers from the illness, he will take care to be instructed, so that he, that, that he may put into practice what has been commanded him. Response, a promise is not sufficient, but a missionary is bound to explain to an adult, even a dying one who is not entirely incapacitated, the mysteries of faith which are necessary for salvation to be believed explicitly by a necessity of means, as are especially the mysteries of the Trinity and Incarnation. Okay, here's one last citation about the necessity of actual faith, especially in the Trinity. And here's from the Catechism of the Council of Trent. The belief and profession of this our redemption by the Incarnation and Passion of Christ, which God declared from the beginning, are now and always have been necessary to salvation. So that's interesting. Always have been. Those who were justified before Christ believed in Christ um, by believing the prophecies and believing the Old Testament properly. Okay, so we've established that baptism, faith, explicit faith, it's, you can't deny it. This is necessary. No implicit faith, no, uh, just, I believe in God. I'm a decent person. Therefore that suffices. It's not. So we have to understand though, if a person were faithful to God's predisposing graces, God would not fail to add this grace also of attending to his instruction in those Christian doctrines, which must be explicitly believed by a necessity of means for salvation. Therefore, were God in his providence not to supply some purely natural means of announcing the true faith to such a person, he would make the essential Christian mysteries known to him miraculously, or through an angel, or by direct revelation. And here's examples of this. So, we know of many examples in which God has sent, um, whether miraculously or through a remarkable act of providence, someone to announce and teach the true faith to certain remote peoples or individuals. Recorded in sacred scripture are accounts of the Deacon Philip's translation to preach to and baptize the eunuch of Queen Candace, of St. Peter being called to instruct and baptize Cornelius, and of St. Paul's providential shipwreck and ministry on the island of Malta. Similar events are related of other saints as well, such as Venerable Mary of Egrida and Venerable Cath and Catherine Emmerich. Likewise, it was discovered through missionary, the missionary labors of Father Pierre de Smet that the Flathead Indian tribe of the Western Plains received instruction from a Catholic Iroquois who had inexplicably wandered all the way from Montreal to them. Do you know how far that is? That's a long walk to just show up. Finally, it is piously believed that the Apostle St. Thomas may have been directed or translated to the American continent. We're going to read that story in a second where he labored for years among the natives. The last footholds of the true faith had long since succumbed to the inroads of paganism when Cortes arrived in 1520, but he found remarkable vestiges of Catholic beliefs and rituals incongruously intertwined with demonic and superstitious counterparts in the religious system of the Aztecs, vestiges which even secular historians describe as having a clearly distinct origins. Distinct origin. And I did an interview, you can check it out with um, I did an interview with the authors of a book on Guadalupe, Our Lady of Guadalupe, and there actually is growing evidence through understanding these, these texts from these uh, Central American tribes, the Aztecs, the Olmecs, the Nahua people, etc. 
And the reason why Our Lady of Guadalupe was so important and why it, 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 it basically facilitated like 9 million conversions overnight, seemingly, is because the traditional beliefs of this paradise and being worthy to enter and the woman with the light and all these kinds of things, this was actually sort of likely a hangover of this ancestral understanding of this faith that had been lost. And it was fulfilled with Our Lady of Guadalupe, which is why this, the, why the conversions happened so fast. And in fact, as gruesome as something like human sacrifice is, the implicit understanding of human sacrifice for sin, even though it's evil to sacrifice human beings, um, uh, it's evil to do it in the, in the way it was done, you know, the, the Aztec sacrifice, it is an understanding, it is an implicit understanding that there must be a sacrifice of the only begotten Son to the Father of heaven and earth, okay, which we only see fulfilled in its possible way through the Christian faith. So let's read an example here of a miraculous conversion. And this is from the life of Venerable Mary of Egrida, Maria de Agreda. Among the holy souls of past centuries who have been loaded with signal favors and privileges by Almighty God, we must place in the first rank Mary of Egrida, Mary of Egrida. This holy virgin burned with the most ardent love of God, love for God, excuse me, and for the salvation of souls. One day she beheld in a vision all the nations of the world. She saw how the greater part of men were deprived of God's grace and running headlong to everlasting perdition. She saw how the Indians of Mexico put fewer obstacles to the grace of conversion than any other nation who were out of the Catholic Church and how God on this account was ready to show mercy to them. Hence, she redoubled her prayers and penances to obtain for them the grace of conversion. God heard her prayers. He commanded her to teach the Catholic religion to those Mexican Indians. She was in Spain, by the way. From that time she appeared by way of bilocation to the savages, not fewer than five hundred times, instructing them in all the truths of our holy religion and performing miracles in confirmation of these truths. When all were converted to the faith, she told them that religious priests would be sent by God to receive them into the church by baptism. As she had told, so it happened. God, in his mercy, sent to those good Indians several Franciscan fathers, who were greatly astonished when they found those savages fully instructed in the Catholic doctrine. When they asked the Indians, who had instructed them, they were told that a holy virgin appeared among them many times and taught them the Catholic religion and confirmed it by miracles. Thus, those good Indians were brought miraculously to the knowledge of the true religion in the Catholic Church because they followed their conscience in observing the natural law. So, this is fascinating. These, this was a group of natives who were moral and they listened to the natural law and they responded to the graces God sent and as a reward, God sent a miracle. So here's an example of how, yes, there's no salvation outside the church, but incorporation into the church can happen in ways you would never expect. Now, here's one of the most amazing stories that's not really understood or told anymore. And this is about the Apostle St. Thomas on the American continent. Yes, Doubting Thomas from the first century. And uh, this is taken from a larger work that I'll mention at the end of this lengthy citation, but this is very fascinating. There are records to indicate that St. Thomas traveled through regions of the ancient Near East, such as Parthia, Medea, Persia, Hyrcania, and Bactria, 
and thence proceeded further east to India. Greek-speaking Christian congregations still exist in Socaterra, the island Socaterra in the Indian Ocean, the place in which the missionary Theophilus was preaching at the time of the Emperor Constantine. It is well known that an entire Christian population was found here by Cosmos Indicoplistus in the 6th century, by Arabian freighters in the 9th, and finally by the Portuguese in the year 1507. According to the traditions of the Syrian Christians, the apostle passed by Socaterra and landed at Cranganor, uh, where took place the first conversions of the Indian people. He established Christian communities all over the coast of Coromandel and Malabar until he shed his blood for the doctrine he was preaching, in a place since called Beit Tuma or House of Thomas. This tradition is related by St. Gregory of Nazianzen and by a merchant of Alexandria who found Christians also in Ceylon. Nicephorus of Constantinople and nearly all the authors referred to by Soloranzo, Solorzano, excuse me, state moreover that St. Thomas preached not only to the easternmost people, easternmost peoples of India, but even to the Chinese. It would not therefore have been such an extraordinary matter to have followed these nations in their migrations eastward to Polynesia, and even as far as the Americas. But suppose that, for the sake of argument, it be granted that human means of transportation from Palestine or from Europe, European coasts to America were unknown during the lifetime of the Apostle. We should then by no means rule out the possibility of miraculous intervention of God for the purpose of spreading the true faith. Let us consider some prehistoric vestiges found in America that would seem to indicate the actual presence of the Apostle St. Thomas on this continent. It is especially amongst the oldest nations of Brazil that the memory of the Apostle has been religiously kept, preserving the tradition that he preached to them. Nirenberg, in uh, Historia Nature, writes, The East Indians, i.e. those of Brazil, that's what they call them, I guess, still show a path followed by St. Thomas on his way to the kingdoms of Peru. It is related in particular that St. Thomas had gone to Paraguay, along the Iguazu River, and afterwards to Parana on the, uh, on the Uruguay, on the bank of which is pointed out a spot where he sat down to rest. According to the ancient reports, he foretold the later coming of men who would announce to their descendants the faith of the true God. This tradition is indeed a great consolation and encouragement to the preachers of our holy religion who suffer much in their labors for the faith among those barbarous nations. Anyone reading the Chronicles of Brazil must be impressed with the fact that in that country, down from ancient times, the name of St. Thomas, who preached there, is preserved. St. Thomas entered Paraguay and the neighboring provinces. Sahagun relates that the commissary of the Franciscans, who with four other religious, had been sent to La Plata, wrote on the 1st of May, 1533, a most remarkable letter in which he states that the Christians had been received like angels by the natives from whom he had learned that, for year, four years before, a certain prophet had announced to them that ere long Christians, brothers of St. Thomas, would come to baptize them. The prophet had further enjoined them to keep the commandments and many other Christian teachings. This report is hardly more surprising than what we learn from the history of Paraguay by Charlevoix, when in the year 1609, the fathers Cataldino and Mocheta penetrated into the wilderness of America to convert the Goranis, 
certain chiefs of the tribe assured them that long ago, according to their ancestral traditions, a learned man named Pai Zuma or Pai Tuma had preached in their country the faith of heaven and had made many conversions amongst them. Yet, in leaving, he had foretold them that they and their descendants would abandon the worship of the true God, whom he had made known to them, but that after the lapse of centuries other messengers of the same God would come with a cross, like the one they saw him carrying, and would restore among their posterity the faith he was preaching. Some years later, when fathers Montoya and Mendoza were in the district of Taitai, in the province of Santa Cruz, the Indians, seeing them approach with crosses in their hands, received them with great demonstrations of joy. The missionaries, manifesting their astonishment, were told the same story as was told Cataldino and Mocheta. These natives designated their ancient apostle also by the name of Pai Abara, or Celibate Father. Pai Zuma seems, however, to have been the more common appellation. In all these regions, the first Christian missionaries of the 16th century were called Pai Zumas by the Aborigines. It will be noticed that the form Zuma or Tuma bears a striking resemblance to the apostle's name, Thomas. Traditions similar to these are reported in other parts of South America, such as those of the Tupinambas and along the Uruguay, where is shown still the resting place of the apostle during his sojourn among the tribe. The most ancient traditions of the Peruvians tell of a white-bearded man named Tonapa Arnava, who arrived in Peru from a southern direction, clothed with a long violet garment and red mantle. He taught the people to worship the supreme God and Creator instead of the sun and moon, healed the sick and restored the sight to the blind. At his approach, whenever, wherever he went, the demons took to flight. Horn aptly remarks that proper names frequently undergo slight variations in their passage from language to language, so that Tonapa might easily represent Tomapapas. The title Papas, or Father, is evidently imported, as it is without meaning in the native language. The surname Arnava is not unreasonably interpreted from the Peruvian Nechua dialect, in which Arma or Arna signifies to bathe or pour water, referring probably to the ceremonies of baptism administered by St. Thomas. Thus the name seems to designate him as Father Thomas the Baptist. Sahagan tells the curious fact that the Peruvians gave to their missionaries, after the Spanish conquest, the name of Padres Tomes. They call them Father Thomases. The Chileans likewise have a tradition of a bearded and shod man who had appeared to their forefathers, healing the sick and procuring for them, when their land was parched, abundant rains. Concerning the northern half of our continent, we find in one of America's most magnificent ruins, the Temple of the Cross of Palenque, artistic relics, which many learned antiquarians have considered as unmistakable records of the early possession of the Catholic faith. Sahagan assures us that the famous Mexican high priest and civilizer, Quetzalcoatl, was none other than St. Thomas. Quetzalcoatl, he says, means not serpent, as is, as is often mistranslated, but twin, that is, the name of the apostle who was called Didymus, which means twin. An interpretation confirmed by the fact that in Mexico there was no serpent worship and no serpent is represented on any altar. Bancroft says during the Olmec period, that is the earliest periods of Nahua power, the great Quetzalcoatl, Quetzalcoatl appeared, 
His teachings, according to the traditions, had much in common with those of Christ in the old world, and most of the Spanish writers firmly believed him to be identical with one of the Christian apostles, probably St. Thomas. So this deified figure, it's kind of like they actually, they they trace back, I, I can't remember where I read this, but they trace back the Norse gods. They're actually the sons of Noah when they follow their names back. It's kind of fascinating. Something like that. So the name Didymus, the twin or whatever, um, later on after they've lost the faith and they've sort of syncretized, with, syncretized it with pagan beliefs, they have Quetzalcoatl, which is basically the Apostle Thomas. Thus, the belief that the Apostle St. Thomas penetrated as far as America in the desire to propagate the teachings of Jesus Christ is not devoid of foundation. The old American traditions, so singularly consistent by their agreement, whilst originating in many different parts of this extensive continent, cannot be lightly dismissed. St. Thomas had not here lasting success, but other Catholic missionaries followed in the course of time to renew the work and to teach Catholic doctrine, morality, and worship, of which the Spaniards found so many clear vestiges in South America at the time of its discovery and conquest. And this is from the Apostle St. Thomas in America, the American, Ecclesi- American Ecclesiastical Review from 1899. So this is fascinating. I mean, this should show us we're not, I mean, if there's no salvation outside the church and God wills the salvation of all men, it should be that there should be this extension of the saving truth of the faith throughout the world. And it seems like it happened even in ancient times, even if many of these places forgot, which also I find just as an aside, is kind of hopeful for our time. I mean, we live in societies that have completely forgotten God, and it seems impossible that our societies can come back to it. But if St. Thomas can bilocate to the Americas, or Venerable Maria Vagrada can bilocate to basically Texas and northern Mexico, then I think that we've got a lot of great hope here. Okay, so in addition to the miraculous bilocations and things like that of saints. There are a number of examples of angelic or purely interior supernatural revelations that are also either reported or surmised. So for instance, it is presumed that the prophet, prophet, the prophet, the prophet Job, who was not a Jew, was given such a revelation instructing him in the Jewish faith. As Father uh, Francois Lenné points out, he nowhere refers to having learned of the beliefs of the chosen people through interaction with persons familiar with those belief, beliefs. Instead, he speaks of having learned them by a dream in a vision by night, when deep sleep falleth upon men, and they are sleeping in their beds. Then he openeth the ears of men, and teaching instructeth them in what they are to learn. And that's in Job chapter 33. It is also piously believed of St. Penelope, she was around circa uh, the year 67, her feast day is traditionally May 5th, that she was fully instructed in the faith by her guardian angel while imprisoned by her father as a precaution against the Christian influence of her acquaintances, and that she was subsequently baptized by a disguised priest sent by her angel. A similar tradition relates that in 1464, uh, Nessa Jotol, the Alcoan king of Texas, Texcoco, a region in modern-day Mexico, turned away from paganism to embrace the worship of the one true God, claiming to have heard of him through an angel. He labored to introduce the worship of the true God to his countrymen, 
building temples in his honor and often praying before his altars, which he adorned with flowers and incense. Shortly before his death in 1473, he expressed his confidence that one day the true God would be known and adored by all who lived in that land, a work soon to be accomplished, in fact, by Our Lady of Guadalupe. So more of that Guadalupe theme, isn't that special? Likewise, some pious soul in the Canute tribe of long ago, living in north-central France near the present-day town of Chartres, seems to have been given the grace of a supernatural revelation, for when the first missionaries arrived there, they found druids who worshipped the virgin who shall conceive and shall bring forth a child, acknowledging that he is the savior of the world. The missionaries had simply to tell them, We know that virgin. She is called Mary. We preach, you, we preach to you her son, Jesus Christ, the savior of the world. The entire tribe readily embraced the faith, and this is, there was reference to this in Chartres Cathedral by Malcolm Miller. Okay, so while these particular historical incidents demonstrate um, only that God has at certain times deigned to provide deserving souls with an extraordinary or even miraculous means of learning the essential revealed truths, note that it has been the consistent teaching of theologians um, that God would always do so for any deserving soul who would otherwise be prevented from learning them. Now, this was held only until uh, relatively modern times, uh, beginning in the 16th century with Franciscan theologian Andreas de Vega. He started to have a different view. But it is a very traditional view, long-standing, that, um, yes, we hear of these miracles, but they're, but these graces are not just little particular attaboys to people that are super special, but anyone who seeks to follow the natural law and seeks to know God God provides the graces for all men, which we know is a teaching of the church, which is an established doctrinal, dogmatic teaching that God provides the graces to all men. And, you know, this is what's so frustrating, if I may say, just sort of go off on a little bit of a tangent here. Something that is so frustrating about the modern insistence of, well, you know, they haven't really heard of the gospel in that place, but invincible ignorance and God is merciful. Here's the thing that's that's annoying about this is this is part of the the modern rationalistic anti-supernatural outlook. It's the modern anti-supernatural outlook. So the ironic part is, is that um, our modern apologists and theologians who seek to appease the world by making God not seem like such a meanie. They actually denigrate the power of God, where if we just hold fast to the traditional understanding of who God is, the traditional teachings of the church, and we understand that God is all-powerful and that his doctrines are, are binding, and if we just follow the scriptures, we know that you cannot be saved outside the church, but we know that God wishes all men to be saved. We know that God uses human instruments, and we know that God is capable of using angelic instruments. The funny thing is, is if you follow this teaching, I actually have more hope for the rest of the human race than if I follow the, I don't know, reductionist view of the modern apologist, because the reductionist view of the modern apologist is almost anti-supernatural. Whereas if I believe in the supernatural omnipotence and omniscience and love of God, then I have to believe, and I have no problem believing this as a traditional Catholic, that as hard and fast, these, these doctrines are as, are as serious as a heart attack. But God's power is unfathomable, 
And it makes perfect sense that we will see these miraculous things around the world. And there's probably a bazillion we've never heard of. This, per this fits perfectly with the traditional understanding of God. What's also interesting about this is I think the modern confusion about salvation inside the church really has a lot to do with evolutionary theory. And I'll explain why. If you believe that the human race truly comes from Adam, if you believe that the human race, and I say truly because, yes, the theistic evolutionists at the various Catholic places, they'll give a hat tip to Adam, but it's very vague. They don't really believe it, you know, let's be honest. Um, Adam was some sort of developed ape-like person who God infused a soul into, and look at that. But let's be honest, they basically explain away the flood and the idea that we are the sons of the sons of Noah and so on and so forth. But if we actually hold fast to those beliefs and we hold fast to the nature of God and we hold fast to the scriptures, then we understand that within the relatively recent past, 5,000 years or so, that there is this origin point and the stories are passed down and the faith is understood and it's lost in certain places and there are vestiges of it. You know, the modern anti-supernaturalist sort of theistic evolutionist, he almost, he limits God. He makes God small, if that makes sense. By denying the truth of the scriptures in the literal historical sense, I should say, not literal, historical is the better word for it. By denying, and I should say, the reason I say historical rather than literal, if you read, for example, the Canticle of Canticles, right? The Song of Songs. To read that literally is to read it as the literature that it is, which is a song. <laughs> so if you're reading it literally, you literally understand that it is a type of literature that is not historical, right? Whereas if you read Genesis, if you read it literally, meaning you're, you're reading it as the type of literature that it is, you can read it as allegorical, you can read it as metaphorical, you can read it as historical. So I say the historical sense because that's the sense I'm referring to. There are other ways to understand it, but there is a historical sense, meaning it's true as far as the events are concerned. But with, with this modern evolutionist idea, it's almost like you know, God's really an afterthought. You know, this is why I don't understand how people hold their faith when they have these theistic evolutionary beliefs. And in reality, if we've gone through so much here, and we're not even done yet. We've got like another hour, so, stay, so bear, bear with me. But it's very clear that de fide, there was no salvation outside the church. And these modern apologists and theologians, they implicitly have to deny this or at least conf or muddy the waters and if they just held fast to the traditional faith, there would be no problem with this. I think one of the problems is, is that the modern apologist or theologian, he's not really a supernaturalist. Uh, he's very much a rationalist. Um, so he believes intellectually the doctrines of the faith, but he has to reconcile them with what he believes to be irreconcilable differences with natural, natural revelation, scientific, materialist things. So, you know, he says to himself, it's impossible for St. Thomas to ever have gone to the Americas. He says to himself, um, you know, these stories, they're just fables of, you know, whatever happened in the Americas and other places. You know, he can't allow himself. He says, well, the flood, it's not really universal. It's more of a regional thing. Um, you know, we're not, we're the sons of Noah spiritually, you know, the, 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 the names of the sons of Noah really refer to the major tribes that the authors of the sacred history of Genesis knew, you know, things like that. And so for him, 
this idea that there's no salvation outside the church, it's unacceptable because he doesn't believe that God has supernaturally infused in all men this desire for knowing the true God and that God can transmute the Catholic faith to these men around the world, men and women, in a way that is not the norm. Now, we see errors that arise from this. You know, we think of, you know, and we see, we see these modern theologians trying to reconcile with this. You have this idea of the anonymous Christian. You know, you have, well, you know, they're basically Christians because they like the good, you know, whatever. So they can't accept no salvation outside the church because in their anti-supernaturalist framework, it makes no sense. And it is unjust in that sense. So they compensate. They compensate. And whereas I'm saying, they comp I should say they compromise, right? And their compromises lead, lead them into ambiguity, if not heresy. Whereas I'm saying, in the traditional view, there's no ambiguity and there's no despair because we know all men want to be saved. Sorry, all, God desires the salvation of all men and God will not refuse any man on earth graces. And, in, you know, uh, we don't believe in anonymous Christians. We believe that there are people who anonymously, meaning unknown to us, were Christians, if that makes sense. It's not that they don't know they're Christians. They know the one true God. We just don't know about them. And this makes perfect sense. Okay, I, I hope that makes sense. Okay, so touching on this idea that God would always provide the means to those who truly desire God, even if they're not known to us, Thomas Aquinas has some things to say about that. In the Summa Theologica, St. Thomas maintains his teaching that belief in the Christian mysteries has always been a divinely established necessity of the means for salvation of all men, even against the objection that it might have been humanly impossible for certain isolated individuals or even nations to learn of these doctrines. He answers by pointing out that God, to whose grace no soul is remote or difficult to reach, has in fact, and for this very reason, reached out to many deserving Gentiles with revelations of humanity's messianic redemption. In the disputed questions on truth, this is a work of Aquinas, he responds to a similar objection by insisting that God would certainly provide such a revelation whenever necessary. And we find this same teaching again in his commentary on Romans. Other eminent theologians are cited in this work that I'm reading to you um, to the same effect, including Alexander of Hales, he deceased and um, died in 1245, who was a contemporary of Aquinas and who, like him, is considered one of the greatest of the scholastics and the renowned Jesuit theologian Francisco Suarez, deceased in 1617, Bishop George Hay of Scotland, um, also cited in this book, I'm not sure if I'm going to get to all of these teachings, um, was a noted teacher and apologist of the late 18th century who strove with great energy and courage to preserve English-speaking Catholics from the inroads of liberalism. Okay, so we can look to sacred scripture for an edification of this. And this is from the Gospel of Luke. And they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? He said to them, The things that are impossible with men are possible with God. Very, very plain. Who can be saved? The things that are impossible with men are possible with God. So here's Aquinas. And this is from... Um, where is this from? The Summa. Second part, second part, question two, answer seven. Uh, whether it is necessary for the salvation of all that they should believe explicitly in the mystery of Christ. So, um, belief of some kind in the mystery of Christ's incarnation was necessary at all times and for all persons. And he means it's of some kind because there's the prefigured belief before the arrival of Christ by the, the old covenant, and then there's after. Okay. Objection three. Many Gentiles obtained salvation, 
as Dionysius states, Now it would seem that the Gentiles had neither explicit nor implicit faith in Christ, since they received no revelation. Therefore it seems that it was not necessary for the salvation of all to believe explicitly in the mystery of Christ. The reply. Many of the Gentiles did receive revelations of Christ, as is clear from their predictions. Thus we read in Job, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Remember, Job was a was a uh, Gentile. The Sibyl, too, foretold things, uh, certain things about Christ, as Augustine relates. Uh, just so you know, the Sibyls were certain women consulted as prophetesses or oracles by the ancient Greeks and Romans. Uh, uh, Thomas refers to the Sibyl. Pagan authors indicate that there were uh, many. The Sibyl of Cumae in Italy was the most highly venerated of the Sibyls and is undoubtedly the particular one indicated by St. Thomas. She spoke about the Messianic age soon to dawn in a remarkable and famous prophecy which was given yet greater renown when Virgil echoed her oracle in his own poetry. The last, and this is a quote from Virgil, the last age foretold by the Cumaean Sibyl is at hand. A new race is being sent down to earth from high heaven. The flock shall no more fear the fierce lions. The serpent shall be no more. The treacherous plant which yielded poison shall grow no more. This is amazing. This is like, um, this is, this is, I mean, this is scriptural. I mean, obviously Christ coming down from heaven, the fierce lions, the devil go around, go, go, goes about like a roaring lion. Think what they did to the Christians in the Colosseum with the lions. The serpent shall be no more, obviously. That's that's the devil. And the treacherous plant which yielded poison shall grow no more. What is that? Adam and Eve eating the fruit of the forbidden fruit. Isn't that amazing? St. Augustine, in the reference here cited by St. Thomas, affirms that any truth about God or the Son of God taught or predicted in the Sibyl was um, not to the credit of that pagan oracle as such, for, uh, for she spoke because she could not help it, of the God whom we worship. Um, there's another Sibylline prophecy as well. Um, and this is found, well, this is found in the in uh, book eight, in a poem uh, in book eight of the Sibylline Oracles. And it goes as the poem contains a lurid description of the day of judgment, earning this Sibyl her place in the first stanza of the liturgical sequences in masses for the dead. Isn't that amazing? This was uh, attributed to Eusebius, by Eusebius, to the Sibyl of uh, Eritrea. I believe that's in Africa. Um, so there's a poem that is part of a mass. Isn't that fascinating? Um, or at least traditionally was. I don't know if they still do it. but And it's Dies Irae, right? The Day of Judgment that you hear about. And it goes like this. Dies Irae, Dies Illa, Solvet Seclum in Favila. Teste David cum Sibila. So, day of wrath and doom impending. David's word with Sibyl's, bl Sibyl's blending. Heaven and earth in ashes ending. Amazing. So there's this understanding that even in the pagans before, there was this revelation. Now, we get back to the beat of it from the uh, reply from Aquinas. He continues, Moreover, we read in the history of the Romans um, that at the time of Constantine Augustus, a tomb was discovered wherein lay a man on whose breast was a golden plate with the inscription, Christ shall be born of a virgin, and I believe in him. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That's so fascinating. Again, if we just hold fast to the traditional beliefs, isn't the faith so much better? <laughs> you know, I mean, you don't have to explain anything away. It's, 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 it's like this. It's, it's like, um, it's like a symphony. 
all of the instruments must be playing their best. Otherwise, you have imbalance. So the dogmas are dogmatic. They're serious. They cannot be denied. The history is severe. But this is all understood in the extraordinary, miraculous providence of God, which is, as they say, stranger than fiction. You know, it is it is inexplicably wonderful. And all of this is denied by the modern church. And it's so sad because it's just, it's an offense against God, in my opinion. I mean, this is, we're not talking, I'm not, I'm not pointing here to like namby-pamby theologians. I'm pointing to Aquinas and Augustine and the church fathers and scholastics, you know, scripture. I mean, this is big deal stuff. Popes. I mean, all the stuff I've read you here is either de fide as far as the explicit doctrines or the common opinion of all of the great saints. So, I mean, this is some pretty big stuff here. St. Thomas Aquinas, this is from Disputed Questions. Is it necessary to believe explicitly? He says, Granted that everyone is bound to believe something explicitly, no untenable conclusion follows if someone is brought up in the forest or among wild beasts. So, let's say that again. Everyone has to believe explicitly. No untenable conclusion. So, you can't say, well, that's not fair. And he continues, for it pertains to divine providence to furnish everyone with what is necessary for salvation, provided that on his part there is no hindrance. Thus, if someone so brought up followed the direction of natural reason in seeking good and avoiding evil, we must most certainly hold that God would either reveal to him through internal inspiration what had to be believed, or would send some preacher of the faith to him as he sent Peter to Cornelius. Amazing! So again, the modern church has this idea of invincible ignorance, so you're not culpable. No, he's saying you're not culpable for your ignorance, of course. But that doesn't mean you just get into heaven because of ignorance. And also, don't discount the miraculous power of God. Again, if you hold fast to the traditional belief, first of all, you're not a heretic. But secondly, you actually give God his due. Okay, so here's that other theologian, Alexander of Hales. He was a contemporary of Aquinas. Um, and here it's, uh, it's concerning the case of a baptized child brought up in captivity by the Moors. And he says by the Muslims, if he does what is within his power, the Lord will enlighten him with a secret inspiration by means of an angel or of a man. So I was actually thinking about this this morning, funny enough. I was thinking about when I came back to the sacraments and I wasn't formed in the faith, but I started going to confession and it was amazing having an open heart and living in a state of grace that I remember just waking up day after day and it was like someone catechized me. I'm not saying it was miraculous like this. I'm just saying it's the, it's the normal means of, of grace through, this, through the sacraments that I would wake up and I would just understand something. It was just, it was like, boom, it just happened out of nowhere. I just understood it. Um, it was like being catechized supernaturally. And I think everyone who goes to the sacraments can attest to this. Your Catholic sense is emboldened because you have to remember Baptism is what? Baptism gives us the faith. The gift of faith is what we receive at baptism. If you've done traditional baptism as a godparent, you say, what are we here? We're for, we're for the faith, right? Um, so, you know, um, this makes perfect sense. We're told God will not leave his children orphans. So there's always a way. There's always a way. The doctrines are severe. And yes, many people go to hell. For sure they do uh, because of the hindrance that they put up. And we could all do that. So don't count yourself amongst the, amongst the saved just yet. But the miraculous love of God truly is amazing. Here's Francisco Suarez. Whoever, and this is from uh, De Predestinazione et 
reprobazione. Okay. Predestination and reprobation, I guess. Reprobate, whatever. Whoever has not set up obstacles against it will receive the light or the call, either externally by means of men or by interior illumination by means of angels. And this, again, this bugs me. We have this stupid modernist teaching of these anonymous Christians. No, no, no. Again, there are people who have had revelations by angels, and this is normal according to uh, Francisco Suarez and, 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 and Alexander of Hales and Aquinas and these, these types. But they're not anonymous Christians. They are Christians. We just don't know about them. Here's St. Leonard of Port, Saint Leonard of Port Maurice. Even the barbarians hid when they committed sin because they knew they were doing wrong and they are damned for not having observed the natural law written in their heart. For had they observed it, God would have worked a miracle rather than let them be damned. He would have sent them someone to teach them and would have given them other aids of which they made themselves unworthy by not living in conformity with the inspirations of their own conscience, which never failed to warn them of the good they should do and the evil they should avoid. Okay, and another thing to hammer home this point, the Catholic Encyclopedia on Grace says the following, um, God will not refrain in extraordinary cases from miraculous intervention in order to save a noble-minded heathen who conscientiously observes the natural moral law. So this is just another vindication. I think we get the point here. I just want to make sure that no one can say, oh, you're just, you're just quote text. You're just proof texting. No, I'm not. I'm, this is a, a pretty detailed work that I've got here. Okay, so what about other religions? Well, the religious observance of paganism, Mohammedanism, Islam, um, and, our, and, and in our present Christian era, Judaism, are hateful to God, regardless of a person's ignorance of the true faith or sincerely pious intention. So, contrary to a common misconception, it is possible to commit sin without being aware of doing so, even in sincere but misdirected acts of worship. Here's scripture. Who can understand this? From my secret ones cleanse me, O Lord. The sins of my ignorances do not remember, O Lord. How can you have, this is from the Psalms, how can you have a sin of ignorance? If you don't know, how is it a sin? The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. This is Proverbs. So if the fool thinks he's right, how is he a fool if he doesn't know? This is from Proverbs as well. There is a way which seemeth right and just to a man, but the ends thereof lead to death. Okay, sin, the wages of sin is death. This is from Proverbs as, as well. Who is the man that can understand his own way? Every way of, of a man seemeth right to himself, but the Lord waiteth the hearts. Here's from uh, Ecclesiastes. Fools know not what evil they do. So they're still doing evil. Now, we might debate culpability, but the sin is still a sin. Um, here is from the Gospel of John. He that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. Here's from Timothy, 1 Timothy. I before was a blasphemer and a persecutor and, uh, what's this word here? Contumelious, but I obtained the mercy of God because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. So he's, he was ignorant, but he still sinned. Here's First uh, John. He that hateth, hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because the darkness, darkness hath blinded his eyes. Here's church fathers saying the same thing. Well, here's a church father, I should say. 
Um, clar- this is St. Augustine clarifying that St. Paul was indeed sinning while he persecuted the church, his sincerity and ignorance and zeal notwithstanding. Here's Augustine. If a bad will ought always to be left to its own freedom, why was Paul not left to the free use of that most perverted will with which he persecuted the church? Why was he thrown to the ground that he might be blinded, and struck blind that he might be changed, and changed that he might be sent as an apostle, and sent that he might suffer for truth's sake such wrongs as he had inflicted on others when he was in error? This is the crux of the matter. If people who are in invincible ignorance are fine because of that, then we should literally never preach them the gospel. That's a logical conclusion of it. Because think about it this way. If somebody was all good and hunky-dory before the arrival of the gospel and they couldn't be guilty of their mortal sins or whatever, they couldn't be guilty of rejecting God, why would you give them the opportunity to reject God? Makes no sense. You're actually, if, if people can't be damned when they don't know of the gospel, generally speaking, as long as they're just a decent chap, then we should actually never preach the gospel. We should just preach decent morality. That would be the conclusion of that, which is what's happened in our church today. As long I remember talking one time, I was teaching my students about baptism. These were grade 10 students, I think. And they were asking me if you had to be baptized to be saved. And I said, yes. And I said, but there are obviously baptism of desire, et cetera, which we'll get to as we go here. And um, I was brought into the office because the parents of one kid were so mad at me. The kid apparently was having like psychological problems because... The kid went home and thought he was going to hell because he wasn't sure if he was baptized or not. And somehow I was in trouble. And I was like, why don't you just baptize your kid? And how does your kid not know if he's baptized? And why do you care about his salvation if you're so unpracticing of Catholics that you don't even, that your kid doesn't even know if he's baptized? Like what's going on here? There's so many problems with this. But the point is I'm sitting in the office. I was, it turned out fine because I didn't do anything wrong. Technically you just have to deal with these things with, with, with being in education, but I'm sitting in the office and I'm sitting with a guy who is a longtime employee of the diocese, has the ear of the bishop. And I'm telling my principal, my principal was a decently Catholic faithful man. He, he believed no salvation outside the church, actually. And I'm talking to him and I'm like, well, you know, you have to be baptized. My principal's like, yep. And this guy pipes in, this guy who is a ear of the bishop, known as being a conservative in the diocese, handles religious formation of schools and all this kind of stuff. And he says, well, no, but the Second Vatican Council teaches that, like, you know, as long as you're on the trajectory of the good, like, you know, there's great hope for your salvation. That's what people believe today. That's what people believe. Here's Augustine, or St. Thomas Aquinas, commenting on Robins, 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 Romans chapter 10, verses 18 to 21. Um, he says, after showing that the fall of the Jews is pitiable because they sinned from ignorance. They sinned from ignorance. Here the apostle shows that their fall is not entirely excusable because their ignorance was not invincible or rooted in necessity, but somehow voluntary. First, because they heard the teaching of the apostles. Secondly, from what they knew from the teachings of the law and the prophets. Here's St. Bernard ridiculing this idea as well. He says, this is from an epistle uh, to Hugh of St. Victor on baptism. Perhaps he who asserts that a person cannot sin through ignorance never prays for his ignorances, but laughs at the prophet who says, who prays, O Lord, remember not the sins of my ignorances. That's from the Psalms. Perhaps he even reproves God who requires satisfaction for the sin of ignorance. For in Leviticus, he speaks of sin through ignorance. If ignorance were never a sin, 
Why is it that the high priest entered the second tabernacle with blood, which he offered for his own ignorance and for the ignorance of the people? This is in Hebrews. If one never sins through ignorance, then what do we hold against those who killed the apostles, since they truly did not know that to kill them was evil, but rather thought that they were doing a service to God? This is from John chapter 16. Thus also our Savior prayed in vain on the cross for those who crucified him, since as he himself testifies, they were ignorant of what they were doing. Remember, they don't know what they do, right? And thus they did not sin at all. So why would Jesus pray for them? Why would he ask for their forgiveness if they didn't know what they were doing? For if they had known it, they would never have crucified the Lord. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. It is not sufficiently clear from these, is, is it not sufficiently clear from these passages in what great ignorance the man lies who does not know that one can sometimes sin through ignorance? Okay, so we can't say that those who are just in non-Catholic religions are okay because of ignorance because we know that false worship is hateful to God even if the person isn't aware that it's false worship because we know that ignorance does not excuse someone of actually, in the, in the material sense, participating in the act of sin, hence why Christ prays for those who are ignorant and so on and so forth. Okay, but we also have to talk about idolatry. All acts of idolatry are an abomination before God. So there are many pagan religions around today Hinduism and so forth, that have acts of idolatry. Here's from Scripture. He that sacrificeth the gods shall be put to death. That's pretty severe. This is from Exodus. And uh, here's from Exodus as well. Adore not any strange god. The Lord, his name is Jealous. He is a jealous god. Here's from the Psalms. Let them all be confounded that adore graven things and that glory in their idols. Here's the famous psalm, or two psalms from David. Let them all be confounded that adore graven images or graven things, for all the gods of the Gentiles are devils. So here is St. Paul in the first letter to the Corinthians saying, Idolaters shall not possess the kingdom of God. There's more in that passage, but he says idolaters. In Corinthians as well, he says, The things which the heathens sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. Anyway, there's many, many here that I'm sure we could go through. I think, <laughs> I think the idea that idolatry is no good. I, I hope that that is uh, acceptable to even the conservative Catholics. And in fact, I know it is because they've done everything in their power to explain away the Pachamama because they know if it is idolatry that that's a, a massively grave sin on behalf of the uh, on behalf of the Pope. Also, I want to clear up something about idolatry. Um, idolatry is not necessarily to believe that the thing that is the statue is the God. It's that the God is housed in a particular place uh, attached to that thing. That's one way of understanding it as well. So this is why Islam is, is in many ways idolatry, uh, because they believe that God is actually centered in the Kaaba in, in Mecca, which is, which, is a, which is a big problem. Now, we see idolatry as being a reversal of the Catholic understanding that the presence of God is substantially present in the Holy Eucharist, but that's because of a substantial change. That's not because the thing itself has any power. It's because the thing has been transubstantiated. So you see these, these, um, these perversions of the truth in idolatry. This is why Protestants who don't understand theology at all because they're Protestants, but Protestants don't understand what idolatry is. So they think a Catholic has a picture of a saint. They think that the saint, they think that that's idolatry. They think that the rosary is idolatry and, and so on and so forth. They don't understand it at all. This is why in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, where the presence of God was prefiguring the tabernacle of the Catholic churches today, uh, also the Virgin Mary, the Ark of the Covenant, 
this is why there could be images of angels and things like that, because um, that was to honor the fact that God was actually there, okay? And the angels were symbolic of the divine power and whatever, whatever, you know, but these were not graven images because they weren't worshipped. They were not, they were not used as part of worship where it was believed that God was attached to this thing because of the pictures, if that makes sense. Protestants fail to understand this all the time. Um, also, okay, we have to understand as well, the rites of all unbelievers, such as the public prayers of Muslims and others, are offensive to God. Um, here's St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologica. Unbelievers sin in their rights. Pretty clear. Second part, second part, question 10, answer 11. Um, here he says as well, since without faith, no sin is taken away. Unbelievers are without grace indeed. Consequently, it is evident that unbelievers cannot do those good works which proceed from grace which are meritorious works for your salvation. That is not material meritorious, but for spiritual. Hence, when, uh, whenever they do anything out of their unbelief, they then they sin. Okay? Any Ben Shapiro fans out there? Um, okay, also, the New Testament has taken the place of the old law, which has been made void. So you can't be saved if you're following Judaism as such. And um, here's from the Gospel of John. The woman saith to him, You say that at Jerusalem is... Uh, is the place where men must adore. Jesus saith to her, The hour cometh when the true adorers shall neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem adore the Father. Well, there goes your Christian Zionism. I don't understand how people hold to that when they look in the scriptures. Here's from the book of Hebrews. There is indeed a setting aside of the former commandment because of the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law brought nothing to perfection, but a bringing in of a better hope by which we draw nigh to God. By so much is Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Okay, um, here's another thing from Hebrews. But now he hath obtained a better ministry, by how much also he is a mediator of a better testament, which is established on better promises. For if that former had been faultless, there should not indeed a place have been sought for a second. If the first one was sufficient, why, why was it a prefigurement of the one to come? For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days shall come, saith the Lord, and I will, I will perfect unto the house of Israel and unto the house of Judah a new testament. Now in saying anew, he hath made the former old, and that which decayeth and groweth old is near its end. And there's many more examples we could give of this, but I, this is already getting kind of long, so we're not going to go through absolutely all of them. But here's Pope Pius XII, very clear from Mystici Corporis, and he says, by the death of our Redeemer, the New Testament took the place of the old law, which had been abolished. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Now, lest one think that someone could follow the old ceremonies, okay, uh, here is St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa. And he says, proportionately, therefore, the ceremonies of the first mentioned state, he's talking about the old covenant, which foreshadowed the second state, had needed had need to cease at the advent of the second state, and other ceremonies had to be introduced, which would be in keeping with the state of divine worship for that particular time, wherein heavenly goods are a thing of the future, but the divine favors whereby we obtain the heavenly boons are a thing of the present, for the mystery of the redemption of the human race was fulfilled in Christ's passion. Consequently, the prescriptions of the law, being instituted by God as a figure of Christ, must have ceased then altogether through their reality being fulfilled. So the old ceremonies don't do anything. You can't be an Orthodox Jew and say, I'm just going to do it that way. It's not. It's anti-Christ at this point because Christ has come and fulfilled it. This also 
we should understand from this that the present observance of the Mosaic law is therefore offensive to God. So you hear about these Torah-observing Christians and things like that. This is the sin of Judaizing. This is offensive. This is heretical. And this cannot be tolerated by someone who believes himself to be a real Christian. The Council of Florence affirms this, and it says, The Most Holy Roman Church firmly believes, professes, and teaches that the ceremonies, sacred rites, sacrifices, and sacraments pertaining to the law of the Old Testament, although they were suited to the divine worship at that time, after our Lord's coming ceased, and the sacraments of the New Testament began. All, therefore, who after the promulgation of the gospel, observe circumcision, means religiously, by the way, uh, and the Sabbath and the other requirements of the law, declares alien to the Christian faith and not in the least fit to participate in eternal salvation unless someday they recover from these errors. So, no, you cannot be a faithful Jew and be saved as a faithful Jew. It's not a thing. It doesn't work. Now, we also have to say, if someone really is a truly devoted disciple of God the Father, he would infallibly become devoted to the Son. So you can't say, well, so-and-so believes in God the same as me when he's a Muslim or a Jew. No, he can't. Now, I'm not getting into the debate whether they believe in the same God in a metaphysical sense, but no, if they truly believe in God the Father, they would infallibly beget devotion to his Son. And here's scripture saying this, and you have not his word abiding in you for whom he hath sent him, you believed not. Whom he hath sent him, you believed not. You have not the love of God in you, therefore you will not come to me that you may have life. This is Christ speaking in, in the Gospel of John. Here's the Gospel of John again. And that the Father giveth to me shall come to me. Okay, so if somebody is of God the Father, they will go to Christ. They will not reject him. So if you reject Christ, you're not of God the Father, whether Jew or Muslim. Here's the Gospel of John again. Everyone that hath heard the instruction of the Father and hath learned cometh to me. So if they really are following God the Father, they will go to Christ. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who isn't at Christ yet won't arrive there. I have no idea. I'm just saying you can't say, well, so-and-so is a good Muslim or a good Jew. There's no such thing as a good Muslim or a good Jew in the, in the objective religious sense. Here's in the Gospel of John. He that hateth me hateth my father also. That's pretty clear. Here's the, gospel, here's the first letter of John. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same, hath not the Father. So if you deny the Son, you don't have the Father. Whether you believe in him in an, a, an abstract sense, but you don't actually commune with God the Father. Okay, now here's where we get more uh, particular. So it is absolutely necessary for salvation as a necessity of means that a person be incorporated into the church. Here's some script, sacred scripture. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Gospel of Mark. Here's John chapter 3. Unless a man be born again of water and the Holy Ghost, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Um, John chapter 13. If I wash thee not, thou shalt not, thou shalt have no part with me. Here are popes and councils. Pope Pius XI. This is from Quas Primus. The Catholic Church is the kingdom of Christ on earth. The Gospels present this kingdom as one which men prepare to enter by penance and cannot actually enter except by faith and by baptism, which through an external rite signifies and produces an interior regeneration. Council of Trent Although Christ died for all, yet not all receive the benefit of his death, but those only to whom the merit of his passion is communicated. For as indeed men would not be born unjust if they were not born through the propagation of the seed of Adam, so unless they were born again in Christ they would never be justified. It's talking about justification. It's talking about baptism. 
Council of Trent again, if anyone shall say that baptism is optional, that is not necessary for salvation, let him be anathema. Okay, and finally, to end off this thread that we're on right now, um, here is St. Thomas Aquinas on whether all are bound to receive baptism. He said, Men are bound to that without which they cannot obtain salvation. Now it is manifest that no one can obtain salvation but through Christ. But for this end is baptism conferred on a man, that being regenerated thereby, he may be incorporated in Christ by becoming his member, wherefore it is written, and this is in Galatians, As many of you as have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ. Consequently, it is manifest that all are bound to be baptized, and that without baptism there is no salvation for men. And this is from the Summa, Part 3, Question 68, Answer 1. Okay, so, so far we've gone through a lot of topics. Let's, ju let's just regroup here and kind of go over what we've talked about. So we've talked about how God desires the salvation of every human being, um, but the gift of salvation is accorded only to those who, before their death, have been translated into the state of justice from that of original sin. Also, God actively seeks to draw all men toward justification, and for this purpose he extends actual graces universally to everyone. God might choose to give a person all the graces needed in, or in order to discover, believe in, and love him in a sudden, all-at-once singular event. But for the generality of mankind, this happens more gradually. Uh, men are gradually disposed to receive sanctifying grace by cooperating with antecedent actual graces, so these, these little bits of grace, so to speak, that come at you as, you as you live. Souls are brought to holiness and friendship with God by fidelity to these graces. Persistent rejection of and resistance to these graces will preclude the reception of further bountiful, efficacious graces, and perhaps even the intended gift of, of justification. Also, sinners are then left in their own errors and ways in a hardened state as graces are withdrawn. Furthermore, um, a knowledge of God obtained from the exercise of human reason is not enough. Um, the meritorious supernatural virtue of faith is more than a mere natural knowledge of God. The explicit assent of faith to, be, to revealed truths is necessary for justification and salvation. While vaguer notions of the promised Redeemer were adequate to the faith of those Christians in pre-Christian times, uh, to those, sorry, to those in pre-Christian times, they would have been Jews or Gentiles before Christ, an explicit belief in the Christian mysteries is necessary for the salvation of all living in the present Christian era. Also, uh, if a person were faithful to God's predisposing graces, God would not fail to add this grace also of attending to his instruction in those Christian doctrines which must be explicitly believed. Um, and this could be miraculous as we talked about. We know of many instances of this. We talked about Maria of Agrida. We talked about St. Thomas in the Americas. Um, uh, we've talked about angelic or purely interior supernatural, interior supernatural revelations. Um, and we talked about how God will always do for any deserving soul who would otherwise be prevented from learning them. He would always do this if the soul is predisposed. So who's it happened to? We don't know. We've also talked about how the religious observances of uh, Islam, Judaism, these are hateful to God, um, regardless of a person's ignorance of the true faith or sincerely pious intention. We've also talked about how pious to popular belief or common, a common misconception 
it is possible to commit sin without being aware of doing so. All acts of idolatry are an abomination of, before God. The rites of all unbelievers, such as the public prayers of Islam, Judaism, etc., are offensive to God. The New Testament has taken the place of the old law, which has been made void. The present observance of the Jew Jewish customs and, and religion is not adequate. It's not valid. Um, and true devotion to God, the Father would infallibly beget devotion to His Son. And it is absolutely necessary as a necessity of means for salvation that a person be incorporated into the church. Okay, so now we get to the point. Here is the, here's where the rubber meets the road with this question of baptism of desire or martyrdom, etc., etc. Goodness, sorry, it's late. I told you I've been recording this over many days, um, putting this information together, and uh, I'm tired. So I'll keep going for a bit. So this is about, we're getting to the point now where we're going to talk about, okay, you have to be baptized, but we have these saints, these martyrs. I can't remember the saint. I should remember this. Um, anyway, uh, I wrote an article about it for Catholic Family News. When I was attending the consecration of the new church down in St. Mary's, Kansas, for the Society of St. Pius X, uh, one of the relics that was uh, transferred from the uh, place of the old altar in the old church to the new altar before the consecration, it was actually a relic of, oh, goodness, the saint. Goodness, I'm going to not remember the name. Some Italian name, but it was a young lady like a St. Lucy, St. Agatha story. She was an associate of either St. Lucy or St. Agatha, I can't remember. But anyway, she wasn't baptized. She was a catechumen who was martyred. So um, there are many, many churches in the United States, for example, that in their altars, there is a relic from the same saint. I wish I could remember the name. Anyway, it's failing me. But uh, the reason is because at one point, the bishops of the states, they must have received a significant size relic and they sort of you know portioned it off for using uh, for the use of consecrating altars. But uh, in any case, this is a saint who wasn't baptized. So how can you be a saint if you're not baptized? I think we understand in our gut, okay, if somebody's killed for Christ, then Christ's going re to reward them. But the baptism is necessary. The, whatever the term would be, the trans translation of the soul from the unrighteous to the righteous state, which is done sacramentally, that's necessary. But if the sacrament doesn't take place, how is there still a sacrament? We're going to get into that. So here is what my book says here. It says, but while such incorporation is normally accomplished by sacramental baptism, and while to neglect or refuse this sacrament would render salvation impossible, it is nevertheless not absolutely necessary for salvation that a person receive the sacrament of baptism. For catechumens and such, pers such like persons may, according to their dispositions, be translated into the state of grace prior to their sacramental baptism. And were such a person to suffer an untimely death, precluding his opportunity to be baptized, he would be saved by virtue of being already united to Christ, and thus to his mystical body, the Church, as well. Through his explicit true faith, his sincere repentance, and his desire to be baptized and united to the Church. Okay, so here are some verses from sacred scripture that speak to the same thing. Here's from Ecclesi um, Ecclesiasticus. No one hath hoped in the Lord, and hath been confounded. For who hath called upon him, and he despised him? For God is compassionate and merciful, and will forgive sins in the day of tribulation. Here's from Psalm 9. The Lord hath heard the desire of the poor. Thy ear hath heard the preparation of their heart. Here's from Matthew chapter 7. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. 
For every one that seeketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Here's from the Gospel of Luke. And which of you, if he asked his father bread, will give him a stone? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, who is in heaven, give the good spirit to them that ask him? So essentially here, I think we get it. Um, the point of baptism is the sacramental means to bring someone into uh, union with Christ. And this is the gift of faith that's given to us by baptism. However, God knows the heart, so to speak, and if somebody has true intention for baptism, explicitly so, um, then the church has said that there is the possibility that this person is translated into that state of righteousness through an explicit, sincere repentance and a desire to be baptized in the church. Now, uh, you know, be specific about this. Explicit desire to be baptized as a Catholic. Okay. Um, that's not the same thing as this vague, implicit faith of the anonymous Christian or whatever. That's not the same thing at all. It's, it is explicit, but the point is it, it is a matter of intention and desire and faith. But again, explicit faith in the Catholic faith. Okay, so here are some popes, councils, and decrees that talk about this. So this is a, a letter to the Bishop of Cremona, and um, this was by Pope Innocent III. To your query, we respond thus. You should hold the opinions of the learned fathers, we assert without hesitation, that the priest who, as you indicated in your letter, had died without the water of baptism, because he preserved in the faith of Holy Mother the Church and in the confession of the name of Christ, was freed from original sin and attained the joy of heavenly fatherhood. Hmm, interesting. Pope St. Pius V. Uh, perfect and sincere charity, which is from a pure heart and good conscience and a faith unfeigned. That's a reference to the first letter of Timothy. Can be in catechumens as well as in penitence without the remission of sins. And here's Pope St. Pius V as well. The charity which is the fullness of the law is not always connected with the remission of sins. And here's the Council of Trent. As this translation from the state of original sin to the state of grace and the adoption of the sons of God, that's in parentheses by the way, after the promulgation of the gospel cannot be effected except through the laver of regeneration or a desire for it. Again, this is an explicit desire for a Catholic sacrament. It's not an implicit thing, but it is a desire nonetheless. Here's the old code of canon law. Canon 737, subsection 1. Baptism, the door and foundation of the sacraments, in fact, or at least in desire, or sorry, is in fact, or at least in desire necessary unto salvation for all. Here's Canon 1239 of the same code, subsection 1 and 2. Those who died without baptism should not be admitted to the ecclesiastical burial. The catechumens, who with no fault of their own die without baptisms, should be treated as the baptized. Here's the Catechism of the Council of Trent. On adults, however, the Church has not been accustomed to confer the sacrament of baptism at once, but has ordained that it be deferred for a certain time. The delay is not attended with the same danger as in the case of infants. Should any unforeseen accident make it impossible for adults to be washed in the salutary waters, their intention and determination to receive baptism and their repentance for past sins will avail them to the grace, to grace and righteousness. 
Now here's the church fathers. Here is St. John Chrysostom. Do not wonder that I call do not wonder that I called martyrdom a baptism. Indeed, there too the Spirit comes with much abundance and works there the remission of sins and a wonderful and astonishing purification of the soul. And as those who are baptized by waters are washed, so those who suffer martyrdom are washed in their own blood. Here is St. Gregory Nazianzen. I know also another baptism, that by martyrdom and blood, which also Christ himself underwent. And this one is far more august than all the others, inasmuch as it cannot be defiled by after stains. And here is St. Augustine. How great is the power, even without the visible sacrament of baptism, of what the Apostle says, With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That's from Romans. But the want is supplied invisibly only when the administration of baptism is prevented, not by contempt or for religion, but by the necessity of the moment. Baptism is ministered invisibly to one whom not contempt of religion but death excludes. Thus, for all those who, even without having received the laver of regeneration, died for the profession of faith in Christ, the martyr this martyrdom does as much to remit their sins as if they were washed in the baptismal font. Indeed, the same one who said, Unless a man be born again of water and the Holy Ghost, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven, said in another sentence with no less generality, Everyone therefore sh that shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. And in another place, Whoso Whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. That's from the city of God. But look here, important. Baptism is ministered invisibly to one whom not contempt of religion but death excludes. So, they're still baptized. You see, this is a, a phrase that the modernists and the neo-modernists love to use, and they'll say things like, well, God's not bound by the sacraments. Well, yes, in a technical, philosophical sense, we can make that argument. But we are bound by the sacraments. So, God sets up the rules, He sets up the methods, and the purpose of the sacraments is to be united to God, and therefore if we're washed of our sins, it's a type of baptism. You see how that works? And also, St. Augustine is careful here to say it's ministered invisibly. So the material means can be impossible, um, and we know that some things are impossible for us, but no things are impossible for God. Okay, so there you go. But in that case, it's, it's still a baptism is the point. So this doesn't, this doesn't negate the fact that one must be baptized. It just means that in the case where the physical baptism is impossible, but the faith and the repentance in the explicit sense is there, then the extraordinary means are accomplished through the almighty power of God, but it's still a baptism. Okay. And here is uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. Is asking. This is in the Summa Part 3. Um whether a man can be saved without baptism. He says, When a man wishes to be baptized, but by some ill chance he is forestalled by death before receiving baptism, such a man can obtain salvation without being actually baptized on account of his desire for baptism, which desire is the outcome of faith that worketh by charity, whereby God, whose power is not tied to the visible sacraments, visible, see, not talking that the sacraments aren't there, but visible, sanctifies man inwardly. Hence Ambrose says of Valentinian, who died while yet a catechumen, 
I lost him who I was to regenerate, but he did not lose the grace he prayed for. Okay, and here's Aquinas. So are we talking about three types of baptism? That's the question, right? And I'm trying to hammer this point home. Here's Aquinas in the Summa. This is uh, part three as well. Question 66, answer 11. It, and this is, um, you know, are there three types, right? Because if there's baptism of water, repentance, and blood, does that mean three types of baptism? And he says, it must be understood then that the other two baptisms are included in the baptism of water, which derives its efficacy both from Christ's passion, as does the baptism of blood, and from the Holy Ghost, as does the baptism of desire. Consequently, the unity of baptism is not destroyed. I answer that a man may, without baptism of water, receive the sacramental effect from Christ's passion, insofar as he is conformed to Christ by suffering for him. So it's still baptism. There's not more than one type of baptism. It's just that there are other ways that in the supernatural power of God that these things can come about, but it's still baptism. In addition to Aquinas, we have St. Robert Bellarmine. This is in De Ecclesia Militante, Book 3, Chapter 3. Catechumens are faithful and can be saved if they die in this state. When it is said outside the church no one is saved, it must be understood of those who belong to her, to her neither in actual fact nor in desire, as theologians commonly speak on baptism. Because the catechumens are in the church, though not in actual fact, yet at least in resolution, therefore they can be saved. So they're still in the church. Okay. Um, good. I think that explains it. I think, I hope that's clear about baptism of desire, but this baptism of desire is explicit. It's not, Ooh, I, I think I'd like to know God a little better. And then someone gets hit, gets hit by a car and it's like, well, baptism of desire. And I'm not trying to belittle it. I'm just saying that's not part of the logic of it. Um, so now we're at the point where we kind of summarize everything we've talked about, and we can understand that God therefore enables and leads those of free goodwill to learn of and seek membership in the Catholic Church, Christ's one true Church. At the very least, He will certainly enable and lead all such persons to discover and reject any errors opposing those tenets of the Christian faith, which all must explicitly believe, and to extricate themselves from affiliation with any false religion in order that there remain no impediment to at least an implicit desire for, for membership in the Catholic Church. Okay, so no impediment to at least an implicit desire for membership in the Catholic Church. So people are going to use that word implicit and say, oh, see, implicit. Well, what this means here is, again, think about the person who's never heard the word Roman Catholic Church because he's in the wilderness and, you know, He's a savage in some place where there's no church. and But he has this true desire to be supernaturally in union with God or to have that supernatural faith. That's at least necessary for there to be this, 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 this extraordinary means of being baptized into the church. And about that, St. Alphonsus Liguori says, and this is from Theoli Theologia Moralis, Book 6, Baptism of desire is perfect conversion to God, along with the explicit or implicit desire of true baptism of water. So to conclude everything that we've learned so far, every human being who achieves the use of reason, no matter how remote he may be from society or the influence of Christian civilization, 
is immediately accessible to the graces of God, and God, who desires the salvation of all, does not fail to draw any such person toward that end. He thus enables men by His grace to achieve that which He requires, an explicit supernatural faith in the essential Christian mysteries, without admixture of pertinacious error or resistance to His Church. Every adult, therefore, has a real possibility of learning the essential truths of our faith, dependent only upon His cooperation with grace, and fortified only by grievous personal sin, or forfeited, excuse me, only by grievous personal sin. In the latter case, a person's sincere ignorance of these essential religious truths may excuse him from the sin of unbelief, but not from the other sins which were the cause of his being left in ignorance. Explicit belief in the essential Christian mysteries, so integral to the very purpose of each man's existence, is necessary for the gift of justification in this life. For that divine action upon a soul, which theologians describe analogously as the baptism of desire, is in essence the purifying effect of faith true and explicit, which has been perfected by charity. Unbelievers, therefore lacking that faith which marks the first step of the movement of a man's soul toward God, can possibly, cannot possibly have achieved that motion's perfection, the heart's purification in the baptism of desire. And since they have undergone baptism neither in deed nor in desire, all unbelievers are unquestionably outside the church, and we believe, as an infallible tenet of our faith, that those who end their lives, in this case, in this way, will not be saved. And just to add to that, uh, uh, important quote here from Pope St. Pius X from the encyclical Acerbo Nemis, 1905, We declare that a great number of those who are condemned to eternal punishment suffer that everlasting calamity because of ignorance of those mysteries of faith which must be known and believed in order to be numbered among the elect. St. Augustine says, But even the ignorance, which is not theirs who refuse to know, but theirs who are simply ignorant, does not so far excuse anyone as to exempt him from the punishment of eternal fire. Though his failure to believe has been the result of his not having at all heard what he should believe, but serves only to mitigate his punishment, for it was not said without reason, Pour out thy wrath upon the nations that have not known thee, nor again according to what the Apostle says, when he shall come from heaven in a flame of fire to take vengeance on them that know not God. That's from Augustine uh, on Grace and Free Will, chapter 5. So we've basically covered the idea of unbelievers and so forth, but now it's a little bit trickier when we talk about salvation for baptized non-Catholics. So this is Protestants. Um, so we have to look at the reality here of what makes someone formally a heretic and if they're guilty of it. So formal heresy is complete and all those who knowingly depart in their judgments from any dogmatic teaching of the magisterium of the Catholic Church. And like schism, formal heresy separates a person from the unity of the Catholic Church and deprives him of all the benefits which its members enjoy. So a common modern notion of heresy suggests, contrary to the traditional understanding, that the vast majority of non-Catholics today are most likely only materially in heresy, in spite of the fact that they conscientiously reject the rule of faith of the Catholic Church. So the logic of that goes... Most Protestants don't really know what they're rejecting, but it's not a matter of knowing the full catechism. It's not a matter of being a theologian to the fullest extent and saying, I've rejected it now that I've studied it for 50 years. What's always been held is that um, a person falls into formal heresy as soon as he knowingly rejects the Roman Catholic faith in favor of some other self-styled Christian religion. So all you people out there on Twitter 
who are arguing with Catholics, you are formal heretics if you choose being a Baptist over a Catholic. You may not understand everything, but you have made that choice, so it is formally done. But it's a little trickier, though, because there's only one type of baptism. So we should hold that young people, and this is with the most reliable theologians throughout history, um, we hold that those who are baptized at a very early age, we hold that with the most reliable theologians, that they were made true Catholics by their baptism when the baptism was valid, but formally ceased to be so when they came to understand that there exists a Roman Catholic rule of faith differing from that of their sect. At this point, by continuing to adhere to their sect, they necessarily reject the Catholic rule of faith. Such sectarians, no less than those who at a later time of life consciously entered a sect which they knew to be in opposition of the Catholic Church, are marked by formal heresy. So, again, is it possible that, there, that God's going to read the heart of a person who's attached to a Protestant thing? And We don't know these things as far as the individual uh, whatever you know, intricacies of the interior life of a person in their soul. We can only go off what we see. And if someone says, I'm a Baptist and I'm not a Catholic, and that's a choice, it, on the externals, this is a formal choice to not be a Catholic. This is a choice to be a heretic. That is what it is. How God will judge that person in the invisible things that we don't see and that person's baptized, I have no idea. But you also have to take into account the fact that we all commit, well, not all, there's been some people who haven't, but people commit mortal sins. Protestants don't have confession. So that alone is a huge problem. So, okay, someone may not be guilty of formal heresy somehow through a way we don't understand, even though they're part of a formal heretical group, but that person has never gone to confession because they don't have confession. So that's a problem all on, all on its own. Formal heresy is complete in all who knowingly depart in their beliefs from the magisterium of the Catholic Church. Um, and this, well, there's many quotes here that we can use to talk about this. So here is St. Thomas Aquinas. This is from the Summa, Part 1, Question 32, Answer 4. Concerning things only indirectly linked to the dogmas of the faith, anyone may have a false opinion without danger of heresy, before the matter has been considered or settled as involving consequences against faith, and particularly if no obstinacy be shown. Whereas, when it is manifest, and especially if the Church has decided that consequences follow against faith, then the error cannot be free from heresy. Um, here is St. Alphonsus Liguori. Heresy is a pertinacious error of the understanding contrary to the faith, in one who has held the faith, from which it is clear that two things are required for heresy, also for apostasy. One, an erroneous judgment, which is, as it were, the matter, and two, pertinacity, which is, as it were, the form. Furthermore, by erring pertinaciously, it is not meant that one clings fiercely and con contentiously to his error, but rather that he continues to hold to it after the contrary truth has been sufficiently pointed out, as, one, as when he knows that the contrary belief is held by the universal Church of Christ in the whole world, against which he prefers his own judgment. The reason is that uh, is that one then thinks that the judgment of the church is not a sufficient basis of belief, which is true pers personacity. So again, if you're on Twitter arguing Catholics and they're showing you like important, infallible things and you're just denying it, I mean, it's bad news. I'm going to go through a litany of quotes here from popes about how heretics are estranged from both Christ and the church. And here's Pope Boniface 
The eighth. The Lord said to Peter, Feed my sheep. He says, My sheep universally, and not these or those in particular. And thus it is understood that he entrusted all his sheep to him. If therefore the Greeks or others say that they have not been entrusted to Peter and to his successors, they necessarily admit that they are not of the sheep of Christ, since the Lord says in John that there is one fold and one shepherd. Here's Pope Pius IX. There is only one sea founded on Peter by the word of the Lord, and whoever abandons the sea of Peter on which the church is established trusts falsely that he is in the church. Here's Pope Pius XI. In this one church of Christ, no man can be or remain who does not accept, recognize, and obey the authority and supremacy of Peter and his legitimate successors. Um, Pius XII. Now I should say, though, sorry. Recognize and obey the authority. Obviously, we understand true obedience, especially in the light of the last 50, 60 years. We understand that, and there are examples in church history. This is always implied that the obedience is true. Um, anyway, but uh, there you go. So, Pius XII, members of Protestant sects are, and this is in brackets there because that's the context, wandering sheep unknown to the shepherd, limbs who are not part of the life-giving body, but separated, arid, and deprived of spiritual nourishment. Pope Pius XII and Mystici Corporis. Just as the true assembly of Christ's faithful is only one body, so there can be only one faith. Consequently, the one who would refuse to hear the church is, by the Lord's command, to be considered as the heathen and the publican. Hence, those who are in various ways separated in faith or rule cannot be living in his body. Here's St. Ambrose. The Lord severed the Jewish people from his kingdom, and heretics and schismatics are also severed from the kingdom of God and from the church. Our Lord makes it perfectly clear that every assembly of heretics and schismatics belongs not to God, but to the unclean spirit. This is on the this is a commentary in the Gospel of John, on Gospel of Luke. Here's St. Cyprian. It must be understood that the bishop is in the church and the church in the bishop, and he is not in the church who is not with the bishop. Now, we should add that sometimes in church history things can get messy, like during the Arian crisis, um, where the bishops themselves were heretics, but they held the offices. And St. Athanasius is out in the desert with the true faithful, and you know, but um, this is the generality of it, okay? And in those cases, um, well, I mean, in those cases, uh, in some way, I mean, the authority, even though they have it in office, because of their heresy, because of their obstinacy, because of their uh, adherence to something that is against the faith, then uh, we have to have the faith in order to be saved. So when it's impossible by the normal means, uh, then you know we might be in, in a regular situation. But in that case, it's the authorities who have transgressed their responsibilities, transgressed those boundaries, who have put themselves into a, a place of heresy, not us if we metaphorically commune with St. Athanasius in the desert, if that makes sense. So here's an important quote from St. Cyprian. Um, because sometimes people will say, well, the Protestants have the Holy Ghost. You know, they got the Pentecostals, they got the Charismatics. Well, here's St. Cyprian. Because there is no Holy Ghost outside the church, it is impossible for there to be any sound faith, not only among heretics, but even among those who are established in schism. Here is Pope Leo XIII. Such is the nature of the faith that nothing can be more absurd than to accept some things and to reject others. He who, re who dissents, even in one point from divinely revealed truth, absolutely rejects all faith. 
Now, here is an important one, given that it's from St. Edmund Campion, um, uh, you know, great English saint. He believes no one article of the faith who refuses to believe any single one, however many Catholic dogmas he retains, yet if he perniciously plucks out one, that which he holds, he holds not by orthodox faith, without which it is impossible to please God, but by his own reason, his own conviction. When, when someone is not a Catholic and holds to a, f- a heretical faith, heretical belief, technically speaking, we should be using terms like, he's a man of religious opinion. But in our world of religious freedom, etc., we say, oh, they're people of faith. They're actually not people of faith, technically speaking. They're people who have religious opinions that are in some ways similar to faith, but true faith is a gift from God, and it's one faith, so God doesn't give a heretical faith to them and an orthodox faith to them. You see what I'm saying? Now, in addition, it's also impossible for a heretical sect like Protestant groups to actually worship God in any true sense. And this is from Pope St. Gregory the Great. Um, and this is from Moralia in Job. In Job. Now, the Holy Church Universal, affirming that all they that are separated from her shall not be saved, proclaims that God cannot be truly worshipped, worshipped, saving within herself. So there is no true worship outside the Catholic Church. Now here's a quote from uh, the encyclical Mortalium Animos, 1928 from Pius XI, and the context is he's talking about schismatics and heretics. He says, Here Lactantius crying out, the Catholic Church is alone in keeping the true worship. This is the fount of truth. This is the house of faith. This is the temple of God. If any man enter not here, or if any man go forth from it, he is a stranger to the hope of life and salvation. So we have to understand the logic of this is that heretics merit nothing from the practice of their false religions. Um, so here, for example, uh, here is Pope Boniface VIII. There is only one Catholic church and that one apostolic. Outside this church, there is no salvation and no remission of sins. And here's Pope Gregory the Sixteenth. A schismatic flatters himself falsely if he asserts that he too has been washed in the waters of regeneration. Indeed, Augustine would reply to such a man, the branch has the same form when it has been cut off from the vine, but of what profit for it is the form if it does not live from the root? Now, that doesn't mean that a baptism in a non-Catholic group isn't valid. What they're saying is, uh, you know, if someone's valid, if, if someone is Put, puts themselves into a heretical sect for baptism, the baptism's valid, uh, but they are still not going to be saved because they've chosen to be outside the church. And here's the Council of Trent. The Holy Synod teaches that in the ordination of bishops, priests, and of other orders, those who by their own temerity take these offices upon themselves are not ministers of the church, but are to be regarded as thieves and robbers who have not entered by the door. Here's St. Bonaventure on the same theme. Outside of the unity of faith and love, which makes us sons and members of the church, no one can be saved. Hence, if the sacraments are received outside the church, they are not effective for salvation, although they are true sacraments. Here's Aquinas. A worship that contains falsehood is inconsistent with a salutary calling upon God. Since God is truth, and to invoke God is to worship Him in spirit and truth. Here's the Catechism of the Council of Trent. The church alone has the salutary use of the sacraments. Now, the same logic applies 
just like God will, will provide the graces for conversion for all men, which we've talked about at length, if someone's baptized into a heretical sect, God will also provide the graces necessary, whether someone chooses to receive them or not. Um, he will not and fail to enlighten the souls of children validly baptized by sectarians in order to bring uh, to actuality their infused supernatural virtues. So they're in a better spot than someone outside of the church uh, with no sacramental uh, association with the church, if that makes sense. Um, and the Council of Trent talks about this. All ought to place and repose a very firm hope in God's help. For God, unless men be wanting in his grace, i.e., unless they forfeit the assistance of his grace by obstinate sinfulness, as he has begun a good work, so will he perfect it. Um, here's the Second Council of Orange. According to the Catholic faith, we believe that after grace has been received through baptism, all the baptized, all the baptized, with the help of the cooperation of Christ, can and ought to fulfill what pertains to the salvation of the soul, if they will labor faithfully. So Protestants receive real baptisms, assuming it's valid, um, but the process isn't done yet. So, and this is a hard truth, but in the case of non-Catholics who finish the course of their lives honestly convinced of their sect's claims, this sincerity itself cannot be thought of as a mark of good faith before God. On the contrary, God would not withhold the illuminative graces needed to extricate sectarians from their ignorance and errors, except from undeserving persons. So, again, the same logic applies. God will not fail to provide the graces. Uh, you're not off scot-free just because you're baptized in a heretical sect. And sacred scripture is clear on this. They that fear the Lord will not be incredulous to his word. Pope Pius IX condemned as an error. Uh, every man is free to embrace and profess that religion which he, led by the light of reason, thinks to be the true religion. So it doesn't work that way. This also applies to martyrs. Pope Eugene IV said in the, bull, in the bull, papal bull Cantate Domino, No one, even if he pour out his blood for the name of Christ, can be saved unless he remained within the bosom and the unity of the Catholic Church. St. Augustine, being in a state of exclusion from the Church and severed from the body of unity and the bond of charity, you would be punished with eternal misery even though you were burned alive for Christ's name. For this is the Apostle's declaration, Though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth nothing. That was to the, the, to the Donatists, by the way. Uh, St. Cyprian, even if such men, referring to heretics, were slain in the confession of the name of Christ, they would not expiate their crime. He cannot be a martyr who is not in the church. Although they burn, given up to flames and fires, or lay down their lives, thrown to the wild beasts, that will not be the crown of faith, but the punishment of perfidy. Perfidy means unfaithfulness. He professes himself to be a Christian in such a way as the devil often feigns himself to be Christ. As he is not Christ, although he deceives in respect of the name, so neither can he appear as a Christian who does not abide in the truth of his gospel and of faith. Okay, so let's wrap up this part of the podcast here about the, the non-Catholic who's baptized. Formal heresy and schism alienate a person from the unity of the Catholic Church and likewise render him incapable of maintaining an authentic supernatural faith. He is thus deprived of both the ecclesial affiliation and the efficacious faith necessary for the salvation of all men, as discussed throughout this talk. Moreover, God is not indifferent to the outrage offered by false churches.
the de deceitful rivals of the Catholic Church, so as to deign to use them as means of salvation for their members. But neither is he indifferent to the desperate plight of a soul estranged from his true church, so as to abandon it without needed graces. That a person would resolutely persist to the end of his life in conscious opposition to the teachings of the church, the authority, excuse me, of the Roman Catholic Church, is an indication not of good-willed invincible ignorance, but rather of the rejection of the many actual graces by which our Lord would have drawn him to his fold. Catholics have been dangerously deceived if they have learned to view a variety of creeds complacently as all leading sooner or later to union with God, as if it were not his desire to bring the adherence of those false creeds into the unity of the Catholic Church. Now, we're going to compare everything we've talked about here to what modern popes and things have said on this. So buckle up. So I just want to put this caveat out there. If you're someone who's like a huge Vatican II fanboy, a big, you know, post-conciliar Pope fanboy, then you're going to have to show us how what I'm about to show you is reconcilable with what we've talked about. And I hope by now, whoever's listening to this, I think you've realized I'm not just proof texting here. This is a pretty deep study. And again, thank you to Mr. Hanish for having put this together because I don't know how I would have done this on my own. Here's the Second Vatican Council. And these teachings seem to depart. I'm not, I'm just saying they seem to depart from the traditional teaching of the church. Here's the Second Vatican Council, and this is in Unitatis Redintegratio. Uh, Separated churches and communities as such, though we believe they suffer from defects, have by no means been deprived of significance and importance in the mystery of salvation. For the Spirit of Christ has not refrained from using them as means of salvation, which derive their efficacy from the very fullness of grace and truth entrusted to the Catholic Church. Does that seem like it fits? Here's Pope John Paul II in Redemptor Ominis. Each human being has reached in Christ the dignity, the dignity of both the grace of divine adoption and the inner truth of humanity, and from the first moment of his existence keeps intact the image and likeness of God himself, with each one Christ has united himself forever. Hmm. Pope John Paul II again. From Sign of Contradiction, 1979. All men from the beginning of the world until its end have been redeemed and justified by Christ and his cross. Here's John Paul II again. Although the church is ordinary, is the ordinary means of salvation and alone possesses the fullness of the means of salvation, nevertheless the followers of other, religi of other religions can be saved by Christ apart from the ordinary means which he has established. Now you could understand that again in a way, right? With the, you know, invisible baptism, etc., etc. But that's a very dubious statement. Here is the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in the Declaration Domini, Dominus Jesus. This was when Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, was the, the head of that, 2000. In 2000. Countless people throughout the centuries have been and still are able today to nourish and maintain their life relationship with God by the instrumentality of the sacred writings of other religions. By virtue of having preserved their apostolic succession and a valid Eucharist, the Eastern Orthodox churches, while not existing in perfect communion with the Catholic Church, remain united to her and are true particular churches. Therefore, the Church of Christ is present and operative also in these churches, even though they lack full communion with the Catholic Church. Well, all of you who are big Ratzinger fans and hate the SSPX, 
You got to stop calling me a schismatic as an SSPX guy. I'm just saying. Follow your logic, guys. Walter Cardinal Casper. Goodness. Yeah, that guy. The old theory of substitution is gone since the Second Vatican Council. For us Christians today, the covenant with the Jewish people is living is a living heritage, a living reality. Cardinal Casper is a heretic. Like, he's actually a heretic. This is clear. This isn't like... What, what Benedict just said there, what Ratzinger, that was, that was ambiguous. You could, you can do some mental gymnastics with these quotes. I'm just saying you can. I'm not saying you should, and I'm not saying they're good quotes. I'm just saying you, you can do some mental gymnastics. But this one you can't. Therefore, the church believes that Judaism, i.e. the faithful response of the Jewish people to God's irrevocable covenant, is salvific for them because God is faithful to his promises. That is heresy. Here's Avery Cardinal Dulles. This was from 1978. The Church of Jesus Christ is not exclusively identical with the Roman Catholic Church. It does indeed subsist in Roman Catholicism, but it is also present in varying modes and degrees in other Christian communities, to the extent that they too are faithful to what God initiated in Jesus and are obedient to the inspirations of Christ's Spirit. As a result of their common sharing in the reality of the one Church, the several Christian communities already have with one another a real but imperfect communion. Now, obviously that's crazy. So... Let's leave with a couple quotes here, considering we just talked about the Second Vatican Council. We'll leave with three quotes here. Here's St. Vincent of Larens. What then will a Catholic Christian do if a small portion of the Church shall have cut itself off from the communion of the universal faith? What surely but prefer the soundness of the whole body to the unsoundness of a pestilent and corrupt member? What if some novel contagion seek to infect not merely an insignificant portion of the Church but the whole? Then it will be his care to cleave to antiquity, which at this day cannot possibly be seduced by any fraud of novelty. So, if we find problems with what's happened since the Council, which is in clear opposition to what we've gone over for the last almost three hours, we cling to antiquity. We cling to the whole of the faith, not the novelties. Colonel Ratzinger also gives us something to think about regarding the Second Vatican Council. The truth, this is what he gave an address to the Chilean bishops in 1988. The truth is that this particular council, Vatican II, defined no dogma at all and deliberately chose to remain on a modest level as a merely pastoral council. And finally, one last thing from Ratzinger. Christianity is not our work. It is a revelation and we have no right to reconstruct it as we like or choose. Many no longer believe what is at issue, that the Catholic Church is a reality willed by the Lord himself. And this was uh, the Ratzinger Report in 1984. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I think that we've covered pretty much everything that we can get our hands on. I'm sure someone could have an objection about this or that, and okay, maybe you do. Um, but I think I've been pretty thorough, and I think we've covered the gamut. I think we've gone through basically all the things that we could ever ask about this topic. If you're not convinced of the church's topic of outside the church, there's no salvation at this point, then I think it's probably a heart problem, not a head problem. Um, also, um, if you're somebody who still wants to hold to the novelties, you know, well, we're saved through the church. It's like, well, again, if you go through the church, you have to go in it. So you're still in it. Um, you know, if you're going through something, let's just say you have this vision of, Someone can live and die a non-Catholic and then through the church. Well, they got to go through those doors somehow before they go to heaven. So they're still going through the church. They're still in the church. They're in the church. There's no way of avoiding that. And that obviously doesn't really fit. And also, you know, I don't deny, I don't believe the church 
had, I don't believe the popes have taught formal heresy ex cathedra. I don't believe that. Um, so if there is anything in the writings of recent popes that seem to suggest something that's not Catholic doctrine, well, it's not binding. And it, you can't just say, well, you know, Pope John Paul II here or Ratzinger there, whatever, said this one thing that sounds like it changed church teaching. Well, we owe those men the benefit of the doubt to say that they're not heretics, ultimately. Um, I guess until you can't say that anymore, if, if you do enough research and you're convinced otherwise, that's your own choice. But we, we have to go with the mountain of church tradition. We cannot say that 19 centuries of Catholicism are just cast aside. That's, that's ridiculous. Uh, the teachings of the church are constant. The will of the Holy Ghost, one of the ways, and you can uh, you can look at what Father Ripperger has said about this many times, we know something is the will of God in the church when it persists for a very long time. God will tolerate errors for a particular amount of time, like the Arian heresy and so forth, but those things are eventually crushed, and only that which has been per persistent and, per and has persisted for 20 centuries is the will of God in the church. Other things are, you know... It's like the wheat amongst the chaff or the chaff, wheat and the chaff, the, you know, the cockle amongst the wheat sort of thing. Things can grow that are not part of the actual, the actual harvest, but they grow alongside until there's a time when they're culled and God eventually culls those things. So it's very clear that the consistent teaching of the church is that there's no salvation outside the church. It's hard. It's as hard as hard and fast as any teaching. Okay. I think that's all. Uh, this is the longest podcast I've ever done. Please. If you would, please consider supporting the show. It takes a lot of time to do this. This is about three hours long total with the introduction and so forth. It took me about seven, eight hours to make it, um, plus all the reading I've had to do on the side. So just kind of do that math. You know, if you could help support to keep this going, you can do that by becoming a member through Substack or YouTube member. And you can uh, find the information for both of those in the description box for this. If you're listening to it on Substack, you're already a Substack premium subscriber, so thank you. Um, and if you're listening to it on YouTube and you want to do it without ads and so forth from now on, you can do that by um, f listening to the, the audio files without any of the ads and so forth on Substack. So there's that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as always, let me know what you think in the comments. This has been the Kennedy Report. Till next time, God bless.